Hey listeners, this is your movie monster boy Mansfield and Derek, my cowardly co-host. We don't normally do this, but before we begin this episode, we wanted to give y'all a proper heads up that the movie we're discussing today is full of things that may be a bit upsetting for some. Yeah, and it's more than one movie. It's actually a discussion of a few movies, and discussion of these movies is going to involve detailed instances of extreme sexual violence, graphic body mutilation, questionable portrayals of real-life indigenous groups, cruelty, and actual violence towards animals, as well as many other controversial themes. As usual, we will introduce our guest and talk about other horror recommendations before discussing the films, and we will have a very clear transition point before we begin our discussion of these films. Yeah, so if you want to check out a little bit about our guests and hear our recommendations, uh, we welcome you to do that. Regardless, we completely understand if you choose to skip our discussion altogether, uh, skip the episode altogether. But thank you for checking us out and stay spooked, y'all. I don't know about you guys, but I was actually eating lunch uh, while watching Cannibal Holocaust, and I kind of got curious because I ate some real trash. <laughs> Let's go around the class and ask, what were you eating when you watched Cannibal Holocaust? Andrews, you're the guest. We'll start with you. What meal did you have? I'm pretty sure I was eating a big bag of peanut butter M&Ms and plain tortilla chips because my girlfriend <laughs> wasn't home, so I just I had to like kind of forage like you do in the jungle, except uh, you know my berries and you know meats were tortilla chips and um, peanut butter M&M's. Nice, nice. Aaron, how about you? So I threw this on in the morning, and I was drinking my coffee and eating breakfast, and that consisted of an egg sandwich with some bacon. Yeah, so it was kind of nice to be munching into a sandwich and pulling out stringy, stretchy (laughs) bits of just charred bacon. Nice, nice. Bacon is very um, fitting for this movie, as well as eggs, (laughs) because eggs have the consistency of brain. Yes. You know, I'm assuming you've got a scrambled egg situation and not a... uh, over easy. Exactly. So some of that good old long pig. Yeah. Your boy was running errands in like full on dad mode. So I hadn't eaten. So I did something that I normally never ever do. I went to McDonald's. <laughs> the true horror. <laughs> yeah. After I uh, put my uh, daughter down for a nap and watched uh, Cannibal Holocaust only feet away from her because I'm the father of the year. I probably crushed about 15 chicken nuggets and the large fries. <laughs> uh, something I have not eaten in a a long time and let's just say there's a scene that was probably the most upsetting scene for me in the entire movie and because of the disclaimer we had at the beginning of this episode I will not talk about it right now so anyone who's sticking around for at least recommendations don't worry but I will bring it up later during the movie discussion but right at that scene as I was killing like the last one or two nuggets I was dunking it in like honey mustard or ranch or something and just the universal absurdity of me watching this movie and eating chicken nuggies from McDonald's like <laughs> was not lost on me. Yeah, there's a couple layers of that there. Just like the garbage food that it is and the amount of processing and stuff, how far like, oh. removed you are from the reality that the natives in that movie are like existing <laughs> in. Yeah, who is the true savage? <laughs> yeah. The natives or Derek? Yeah. yeah. Big slime over here. I know, and like 
Who's to say there's not a pinky that got crushed in that shit when they were processing? (laughs) I was the monster. So there we go, Aaron. Take us away, bud. Hell yeah. Well, welcome to another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, your movie monster boy, Aaron, and my cowardly co-host, Derek, in which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror across all ages and subgenres, as well as discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies and horror junkies alike. Mike. Yes, this week we are going to be tackling probably one of the most extreme, if not the most extreme movie we have done so far, The Notorious Cannibal Holocaust. Just go ahead and let's hear another hit of that good, good theme song. Wait, Cannibal Ferox. Wait, Ferox? Ferox, Cannibal Ferox. <laughs> Did we mix up movies? Did our streams (laughs) Ghostbusters cross? Yeah, did you guys research (laughs) Cannibal Holocaust? Yeah, was it Holocaust when <laughs> yeah. we were watching? No, no, it was Cannibal Ferox. That was the one that I uh, I recommended. Well, <laughs> no. this is going to be a hell of an episode then. I have seen Ferox, but Ferox is not the movie that I prepped for. Interesting. Well, this is going to be a fun conversation. Yeah. Let's kick up Wikipedia, baby. <laughs> may as well talk about the cannibal genre, right? Yeah. A lot of what we're going to talk about, honestly, though, I think we're going to have a lot of crossover regardless, especially since, weirdly enough a lot of the same people are involved yes, yeah so fuck it let's do this live let's <laughs> nice. just keep going with this because i've seen ferox yes i can still speak to it that might be my fuck up i apologize yeah no i have never never seen ferox but i am down to talk about the genre as a whole and compare the two i'm a big fan of the genre so there's gonna be a lot of crossover on this conversation regardless oh, as yeah. far as themes and everything else is concerned so uh yeah fuck it let's do this All right. Well, Aaron, want to continue with the introduction? (laughs) Sure. Let's do it. All right. So as a guest, we have on Andrew Parker this week from the Crypto Podcast. Oh, yeah. What's up, Andrew? How are you doing? Not much. Not much. (laughs) I'm excited to be here and talking about this. Cannibal Ferox is my favorite of the, you know, Italian exploitation jungle horror genre which has like a whole bunch of movies. I'm a big fan of all of them as a whole. Not so much a big fan of some of the things that they did in them, but there is something that I like a lot about the jungle horror. There's something so scary about the Amazon jungle. Yeah. The minute you step in there, everything's like trying to kill you. You've got mosquitoes, you know, that could give you malaria. You've got venomous snakes, just a thick undergrowth and stuff that'll like slow you down. Quicksand, tigers, lions, bears, oh my. Uh, and then you've got stereotypical natives who are thirsty for your blood. Yeah. Kind of a problematic favorite, but I do really enjoy this subgenre, you know, which uh, culminated in Eli Roth's Green Inferno which is kind of a love letter to the entire genre, which was also, I really loved that movie a lot too. The way this all came about backing up randomly is like Shelby, you and I were in a lot of the last podcasts on the left Facebook groups. Uh, You were an OG because you were in there way before you and I was. And I think I became a member like right before they really broke out nationally. I kind of kept in touch with a lot of you guys. And then, yeah, when Aaron and I kind of fired up our podcast, I mean, I don't even think we had more than like 20 episodes in and you were already like, like asking us to be on 
nothing ever seemed to come together. Life stuff kept happening or whatever. But then this all finally worked out. Granted, we fucked up with choosing the movie, <laughs> but that's okay. This is kind of fun, though. I like the vibe here. Yeah. You've also started doing a lot of content creation on your own. A lot of it has a horror comedy edge to it. The main thing I've listened through all of it is Crypto because it's very bingeable. Each episode is very short. I was actually, you could binge all of Crypto in like less than three hours. Yeah, yeah. And for our listeners, if you don't know what Crypto is, it's a podcast about uh, scientists hunting cryptids and it has voice work by Henry Zabrowski, Ed Larson from The Brighter Side, Shelby Scott, who was on our Changeling episode and from the Scare You to Sleep podcast. But what are some like other projects that you may want to like bring up that our listeners could check out too? Crypto's our big one. We actually just cracked 100,000 listens on that show, which is like, okay, yeah. yeah, very nice. I mean, it helps a lot that Henry was on it. True. Because I don't even really <laughs> promote it that much anymore. People just keep finding it. But my other thing that I'm really loving, I've been doing a show called Ghosters. That show is about two paranormal investigator guys, like influencer types. They're constantly bumbling their way through extreme paranormal situations and having to find solutions for these horrible paranormal problems that they've caused. Okay. Nice. <laughs> That's a ton of fun. That's another audio drama. Nice. Okay. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Channel 101. No, I haven't. It was a film festival created by Dan Harmon. Ah, uh, okay, okay. It's like yeah, five-minute yeah, yeah. shows, five-minute pilots, and there's like 10 every month. You know, the best get picked by the panel of people who are in what they call primetime, and primetime is the top five shows, and every month the audience watches, and they vote for the shows that they want to see in primetime. They vote for their five favorite shows, and the five top shows continue their run, and then the bottom five shows, they all get canceled and then those creators have to kind of start over if they want to try to stay in the competition and ghosters was kind of a throwaway show that we made because during the pandemic it got a lot harder to make live action content so they they decided to make a spinoff called frequency 101 which was all audio dramas we had submitted crypta to that and crypta lasted a couple episodes and then got canceled we were low on submissions one month so we made this show about these goofy paranormal dudes it ended up lasting 14 months months oh Um, yeah yeah it kept getting voted back the scope kept getting bigger and bigger on it the second season of it we went full lovecraftian end of the world horror it was a pretty badass i i highly recommend that one and that's another one where it's really short because of the five minute constraints on episodes so you can binge the whole thing in like probably two hours you know we keep it tight we try to keep it funny i'm really enjoying doing that one we're working on crypto season two right now as well which has got an even bigger cast we got danny tamborelli's gonna be in it Lori beth denberg from nickelodeon (laughs) yeah oh yeah it's gonna be uh, a banger it's just it's been a process because we were about to start recording everybody when covid hit right so that really screwed up like our recording process but now i think we're like mostly back on track with everybody well and it's also nice to have not only a fellow holdenator on the show but you might be the og holdenator (laughs) yeah i definitely helped solidify it yeah uh, which i love i do love that and this is kind of a spoiler for crypto but it happens pretty early on so uh you know listeners i I don't think i'm spoiling anything too much you kill the fuck out of holden's character on that which i loved (laughs) that was hilarious i do love to introduce characters and then kill them if you listen to any of my shows you'll 
discover that this is one of my favorite things to do is build up a character and then immediately just kill them. It's very funny to me to do that. It works a yeah. lot of times. Real quick about Ghosters, because I, I haven't checked it out yet, but there was something you posted about it um, when I think you're wrapping up the last season of it. It made me laugh so much, and I like made a mental note to add that to my list of things to check out. You made this purposely shitty picture where it was you guys cropped in, and it's all the spirits who died, and it was like Harambe and Robin Williams and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, that was my other show. It was on Frequency. It was What Dreams May Come To, Electric Boogaloo. That's it, oh yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that was wild. I, w- I wasn't sure if that one was going to offend people or not, but people actually really loved it. And the plot of that is it's a meta sequel to What Dreams May Come, starring Robin Williams. And it's Robin Williams, and he's in hell because he killed himself. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I do want to disclaimer part of the themes of this is kind of the unfairness of these arbitrary rules of religion. You know, sure. he's in hell and he's like, what the hell? You know, oh, I was a good guy. Why the hell am I down here? And they're like, <laughs> you know, if you can make your way up through the circles of hell, you know what? You're you're free to go, but it's going to be a journey. And along that journey, he meets Coco the Gorilla, you know, who he was famously very friendly with. Yes. And he also meets Charles Manson. And then the show got canceled. But uh, I plan to make some more of it uh, a little bit further down the line because it was so funny and people loved it so much but yeah it was uh totally bonkers it was a bit that i used to do sitting in my car like driving home from work in la traffic just being trapped and i would just do like a robin williams impression to myself in the car be like oh oh i'm in hell what the why am i here oh (laughs) it started completely unscripted and then the idea fleshed itself out a lot because there are a lot of weird arbitrary religious rules and stuff and i'm sure you guys are probably on the same page as me but you know a lot of them seem ridiculous to me yeah you know it was a fun kind of way to like explore that through the different circles of hell and yeah to kind of explore the injustice of organized religion and and all that yeah that's a clever way of critiquing it to be honest with yeah. you yeah Yeah, thank you once again for joining us on this episode. I guess we'll move into our recommendation section of the episode. For any new listeners out there, uh, we recommend to each other other horror recommendations, be it other movies, different from the one we're covering today, TV, video games, books, etc. We always start with the guest, actually. So, Andrew, have you gotten into any horror lately that you uh, wanted to recommend to us and hopefully our listeners out there might check out? I actually just watched Paranormal Activity Next of Kin. It's like Paranormal Activity in an Amish community. That was pretty, Interesting. pretty good. My girlfriend absolutely hated it, but she always hates those bad ending movies. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't like when there's not much resolution. I may be wrong about this, but I heard, wasn't this one completely an unrelated movie to that franchise, and then it got picked up and just quickly rebranded as part of that franchise. Yeah, sort of. It was kind of like a standalone story. You know, it like okay. it didn't really have anything to do with the first couple movies, but it was in the style of found footage, and there's like paranormal stuff happening. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Well, and that, that's kind of like a, a thing with this franchise. I feel like because I've only seen the first one, but I know like what happens in a lot of the other ones and they always seem to end on like a bad note in general or like an up in the air kind of situation so that seems to be like a common trope so it's it's interesting that it continues to do that yeah and it's, it's funny because i enjoy movies like that i like a lot of the ones where they kind of subvert your expectations and they like no fuck you yeah everybody has the horrible time and nothing good happens in the end yeah another one that i saw like fairly recently i mean it's not new new but was the lodge which i really liked did y'all see that 
And I think Aaron yes, did. Yes, I watched it right when it hit Hulu a couple of years ago. I, I knew what it was about and stuff, and I knew all about the very beginning of the movie. Because, like, opens with... I moved in with my girlfriend during COVID, and she lives with their dad up here in Woodland Hills. And they watch movies together a lot. I was in my room, and I heard the beginning of this movie. The very beginning where, like... And I was like, oh, my God, they're watching The Lodge. And I, like, ran out. <laughs> and I was like, is this The Lodge? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we just saw it on Hulu. We're, we're going to give it a try. And I was like, oh, hell yeah. There were people I very much wanted to watch that movie with because uh, I'd had, like, the whole thing spoiled for me before I got a chance to watch it. <laughs> so I knew what was, like, going to happen. And I was like, oh, yes. Because, like, sometimes the movie experience is more about who you're seeing it with than actually even seeing it. Yeah. That was a fun yeah. experience to watch them just go down that <laughs> that hole and like realize what's happening <laughs> through the movie yeah like wasn't it directed by like two people or like a couple or something yeah it's severin fiala and veronica franz the team that did goodnight mommy you've brought this movie up now i'm looking at it right now yep yeah i talked about it on a previous episode yeah i dug it enough i think it was a very well-made movie i was just a little bit disappointed kind of where it goes ultimately but I definitely dug the atmosphere. The house itself is such a character and like creates such an insane vibe. And, and the kids are perfectly fine, I think. Um, it was just kind of one of those that like went where I was expecting it to. But that's not always a bad thing. Like you said, it's kind of about the journey. And I've definitely come around to that movie a little bit more since I first saw it. Definitely left an impression on me and was definitely more like, an atmosphere that my brain didn't quite leave for a while. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. And I, I do remember when it dropped that it was on a lot of best of lists for 2019. Yep. Or we were fresh or just starting the podcast right around when The Lodge dropped. So I remember looking up a little bit about it. That might be a movie we need to do in the future eventually, just because I, I always love my psychological horror, baby. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Another in that vein that I really liked, which is a lot older, was uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer. Yes. That's a great movie. Another movie that I made my girlfriend watch that she absolutely fucking hate it <laughs> totally hated that movie and i i mean i love it because it's one of those movies where they go there you know it's like it kind of subverts yes. your expectations you don't really know what you're watching and you don't really know what's going on and it just keeps kind of happening at you and then eventually once all the pieces fall together it just becomes full psych horror kind of thing all the way to the end but i just remember watching it and being completely mesmerized by the performances but being so fucking infuriated watching Barry Keoghan eat spaghetti <laughs> in just the messiest way with just spaghetti like glommed all on his mouth and just wanting to slap the hell out of him. You're like my dad. There used to be this old bounty commercial where it was like this fat little child eating chicken wings. I don't know if you guys remember this, but like, and he's I like, think I do. Yeah, and he's just making a huge mess and he's <laughs> wasting all these paper towels. And my dad used to get so mad every time it would come on the TV. He's like, he's wasting all the paper towels. Just use the paper towels <laughs> at the end <laughs> i was just going to recommend one more movie which is more a little bit more recent was the empty man yes. yes that was a pretty fun one we discussed that and then we actually had cullen bunn on the show who wrote the comic book that that was based yeah. on awesome awesome yeah i liked it a lot you could definitely see that they were kind of trying to set it up for like a franchise which is interesting because the movie is 
absolutely nothing like the comic book. Yeah, yeah. It seemed like it was one of those things where it kind of lost the source material. Well, it seems like a completely side tangent story. Mm. It felt to me like it was very much in the same universe, just we're not going to tell the exact same story as the comics, but here's just another thing that happened at the same time. I don't want to put my foot in my mouth, because for anyone who like goes back and listens to the Colin Bunn episode, uh, which was Prince of Darkness, I want to say we kind of talked a little bit about that with Colin, and he was saying did, that yeah. that was deliberate. He kind of gave the blessing and helped a little bit with the script of it being a different story altogether, but maybe in the same universe as the comic. So if you go about it either as like something completely new or you go about it as, oh, this is taking place over here, then it might be a little bit more of an enjoyable experience. But that movie has been getting a lot more buzz uh, as like kind of an underrated gem the last year or two. Well, since they put it out and didn't do any advertising for it, it seems like this weird lost, how have I never heard about this thing? Oh God, everybody should watch this. You got to check out this weird thing. Yeah. Did it come out during COVID? Was it right before? It came out toward the beginning of COVID, yes. It was made four years prior. Not four years, two years prior. My brain's mixed up. But it was one of those weird movies that got lost in the Disney Fox shuffle. Oh, yeah. And then COVID hit, so it just kind of got dumped straight to HBO Max and streaming and was like, oh, there you go. So yeah, then people all of a sudden were like, wait, where did this come from out of nowhere, right? But yeah, it's really solid. I've watched it a second time, and I am very curious to see what else the director ends up doing from here. Like, I'm I'm sold on checking out his future stuff. Nice. Alright, well, uh, anything else, Andrew? Nah, I, th- I think that's about it. Uh, th- that's the horror I've been checking out lately. Nice. You know, uh, I've been into a very bleak vein. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as you can tell by my uh, my selection for the episode. It's weird, that's kind of like my comfort zone a lot of the time. Whereas like, I think it's kind of like a, a reverse psychology thing where it's like, well, could be worse. <laughs> could be yeah. my eyes to gouge out my penis cut off. Yeah, real life could be a lot more terrible, I guess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But uh, Aaron, what you got this week? What uh, spooky stuff have you been into? Uh, So I got three things. I will start with a book, Universal Harvester, written by John Darneal from The Mountain Goats. I have read this one. So I wanted to fire up a new audiobook and realized, oh, this one's just a few hours long and listened to literally the entire book while I was getting our yard cut and mowed and weed-eated and everything for the first time of the season. And uh, I really dug it. I liked Wolf in White Van a lot. I think I like this one more. I have yet to check out his newest book, but that is next on the list. So I'm catching up with this one. Essentially, it is following a handful of people in a small Midwestern town. They work at a video rental shop. And this is in the 90s, hence the reason why they're working at a video rental shop. But they start having people complain about really weird, innocuous movies having strange and disturbing shit recorded over segments of the movie. Almost like borderline snuff film stuff, Yeah, from what I remember, yeah. Exactly, right? So, like, girl comes back in, brings back in a copy of Bring It On, and is like, hey, this has weird kidnap footage in a basement on this. What the fuck is this, right? <laughs> And so it kind of goes from there. And it's just these people becoming obsessed with discovering the mystery of who is doing this and everything else. Interesting. It definitely ends in a way that doesn't fully explain the mystery. So don't expect there to be 
a complete resolution per se, but it is very much a good mood piece. Yeah. It's a good nostalgia piece. It's, it kind of feels like Darnell's love letter to not only horror, but the 90s in general. Totally. And kind totally. of like being stuck as maybe a late teenager or early adult, kind of not really sure what you want to do out of life, and you're kind of still in your hometown, yeah. and then like this just weird circumstance starts coming uh, happening to you, and it is kind of a bit like... <sighs> This is a wild comparison, but in the sense that David Lynch films, even if they don't end quite the way you want them to, or like they're very open-ended, even like Twin Peaks, it still feels fulfilling by the end. Like I still felt like it told the story it needed to tell, even though the ending was not quite fully fleshed out for you. I I really enjoyed this book. I read it five or six years ago, whenever it first came out. Yeah, it's been out for a few years. Like I mentioned, it's new one actually just came out maybe two or three months ago. Um, I've been meaning to check out this one for a while just been dragging my feet on it heather actually read it when it came out but yeah i I definitely dug it a lot and i'm gonna check out his next one probably this next week as i'm driving back and forth from work second movie that i watched which is actually very relevant considering like themes history etc of the movie that we're covering i watched censor which is a newish indie movie is that on shutter or something because i i remember seeing a poster for it yes yeah yeah, it's on shutter uh it's directed by prano bailey bond it's set in the 80s during britain's whole video nasty situation right so it's following this woman who is very buttoned down, meek, kind of vaguely conservative. She's working for the BBFC as they're going through essentially assigning ratings to movies, you know, figuring out what movies are going to get edited, what movies are going to be banned, etc. And she has some past trauma that is catching up to her. And the videos, as she is watching them, there are weird clues in one that she kind of becomes intrigued with and she goes down the rabbit hole of trying to find the director and who made the movie and all this other stuff dot 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 the boundaries of reality start to kind of blur from there etc nice sounds right up my alley yeah it's pretty interesting and atmospheric it's fun because it's not necessarily a nostalgia show of hey don't you remember this movie that was controversial they basically make up all these fake video nasty titles and kind of create this world around that. The lead actress is uh, Neam Alger. I believe I'm pronouncing her name correctly. And then Michael Smiley is also in it. Uh, he's one of the stars of Kill List, which we covered really early on this show. He's in it in a fairly small role, but very memorable. Definitely dug this one. It was pretty cool. It's, again, on Shutter. Pretty easy to get a hold of. Vinegar Syndrome actually has a really great blu-ray of it that is available through one of their partner labels so if you want to own a physical copy of it it is totally available ready to go so yeah that is censor nice i'm probably gonna watch that after this that sounds right up my alley yeah it's pretty fun it's interesting too that the entire thing is based around the idea of the video nasties but it's honestly not really explicit it doesn't really ever go there you see them watching a lot of stuff but it's never fully 
going there and showing you what they're watching. You're just kind of seeing their reactions and hearing things. So it's interesting because it's fairly tame for what it's kind of covering, but it goes full bananas by the end of it. Nice, nice. Let me jump in here because that just reminded me of a movie that I really liked a lot. I believe I I picked it up in the blockbuster days. Have you guys ever seen the quote unquote documentary Sandman? Man, no. Oh, uh-uh. my God, this. this movie's awesome. It's so good. So it's presented as kind of a uh, a documentary. The title, it's actually, it's like S&M, man. Okay, I, I was looking for it. Uh, okay, it's S and percent man. Yeah, okay. yeah. So it's basically, it presents itself as this documentary for extreme horror filmmakers, like Fred Vogel of Toe Tag Pictures and Bill Zebub, if you guys are familiar with them. Yep. So they're interviewing all these, like, creators and stuff at, like, horror cons for that part it is actually very much like a documentary where they're talking about their process and their audience and stuff where they make this kind of faux snuff hyper exploitation but then they meet a guy who makes these really weird videos where he's like stalking women and then you know at the end of each tape in his series which is called sandman he like kills the woman he's very cagey about how real it is and how much his girls know about like what they're getting into and stuff it's a really interesting watch especially if you're into um extreme horror just the more like wild shit that Bill Zebub or Fred Vogel type make. I can't recommend that one enough because it's kind of a hidden gem. I, I remember I bought a copy of it from Blockbuster when they were like going out of business. It's a pretty interesting ride. The main character is like really friggin' creepy. I'm pretty sure he was like an improv comedian or something that never really did like anything else. <laughs> That's awesome. And it's so weird. But yeah, because he's like such a creep in it. He's like cagey with the documentarians about, you know, how real it is. I highly recommend that one if you're into the more like underground horror stuff, like the type of stuff you get at cons and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's very plugged into that circle. There's a through line between those two uh, recommendations, Aaron, and then that one you just threw out, Andrew, of people seeing something weird and then following that rabbit hole, right? Yeah. And they all sound like they go in completely three different separate directions from that. Because I know Universal Harvester is like that. And then the way you described Sensor, Aaron, also made it sound like there's something to do with something weird on a screen. Character gets like involved in what that's about. And now, Sandman. Yeah, and I'm looking at this movie. It's actually directed by J.T. Petty, who did Hellbenders, which is one that I really dig. I think a lot of people would dig this movie if they checked it out, because it's one that like kind of came and went weirdly quick. Yeah, he's also the guy who wrote all the Outlast video games, by the way. I knew I recognized that name. Oh, really? Huh. Nice. Okay. Yeah, yeah. he wrote uh, Outlast, Outlast Whistleblower, and Outlast 2, which, if you're not familiar with that, those are some pretty intense horror uh, first-person <laughs> video games. Very. Well, some of the scariest games I've played. They're pretty intense. I've watched playthroughs <laughs> of at least two of them. Cool. So my last one is actually Ty West's X, which just came out. Interesting, because you have a weird take on this compared to like what I've been seeing on Twitter. I'm like a 
firm 7 out of 10 on it. I'm not as massively wildly, oh my god, this is the best horror movie I've seen ever, like a lot of people are. Uh, the, horror, the horror community on Twitter fucking is still eating that movie up. Well, I think it's, this is such a good example of crossover, like mainstream horror. It's put out by A24, it's actually in movie theaters, people are seeing it in movie theaters. It's a very good crossover hit, so it's one that is not just getting the eyeballs of actual horror fans lots of mainstream movie critics are reviewing it and checking it out and enjoying it which is good anything like this that's horror related that hits theaters and is positively received cool good for the genre i am not the biggest ty west fan i wish i was but his movies they don't click with me for for whatever reason they should I own a copy of The Innkeepers. I own a copy of House of the Devil. I definitely try to rewatch those every couple of years. I mean, and we're probably going to do both those movies yeah, at some we're, point. We're going to do yeah. them eventually, for sure. I loved Innkeepers. I really liked Innkeepers. That was actually a big inspiration for Ghosters, just the, yeah. the amateur paranormal investigators. Sacrament was really good, too. Sacrament's interesting, yeah. Out of all the movies that he's done, The Innkeepers is the one that intrigues me the most. I haven't seen any of his movies, though. And wildly enough, I really like In a Valley of Violence, which is the Western movie that he fucking did with John Travolta and Ethan Hawke. That movie's pretty cool. But yeah, like, Ty West is one of those guys that I wish I was a bigger fan. There's just something about his movies that kind of keep me at arm's length. You know, the pacing is obviously something that comes up with all of his movies. They are a little bit slow, right? But X, I think, is easily his best made movie. His filmmaking craft has gotten so much better over the last couple of years. And 100%, I think it's because he, you know, he made his first handful of movies. But basically for the past seven years, since The Sacrament, well, no, I guess In the Valley of Violence was like the year after that. But since that one, he hasn't made a movie until now. It's just all been TV. And I think there's something to be said about kind of honing your skill a little bit more, little by little, right? And doing TV and having to adapt to different styles and different crews and just getting better at filmmaking. X is easily his best shot movie. The writing in it is very sharp. I think my issue with it primarily is it doesn't quite go far enough for me. And I say that as somebody who's not entirely masochistic, but the movie is about a group of really overly ambitious young filmmakers who are making not a porn movie, the best porn movie. They are trying to make like a cinematic, everybody's going to watch this, it's going to be the next Deep Throat, it's going to be the next Debbie Does Dallas, huge thing. And they go to this farmhouse out in the middle of nowhere, Texas, to shoot the whole thing. They're not entirely upfront with the like old couple that owns the place about what they're doing. And then dot, 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 murder starts happening. It has a lot of Texas Chainsaw vibes. It has some Rob Zombie vibes a little bit, but it's still very Ty West. And I think my main issue is, like I said, I don't think it goes far enough. I don't think it's explicit enough. You told me you wanted the more exploitation in this movie. Yeah, for yeah. a movie that is supposed to be about exploitation filmmaking and is styling itself in exploitation movie trappings... 
it never really becomes an exploitation movie. So uh, there are moments, certainly, and there's some good humor to this movie, I will say. Like, uh, Kid Cudi's in this movie, and he is kind of the main porn star stud guy. There's a moment where he enters the door and you just see him in profile backlit. So he's just kind of in shadow, and he's got this huge fake dick swinging down to his <laughs> knees when he answers the door. And it made me fucking, like, I was the only person in the theater like dying laughing at that moment <laughs> but it it stars a lot of solid people martin henderson from the ring is in this and he is like almost unrecognizable because he is like fake tan mcconaughey up doing you know a texas accent and everything else britney snow from pitch perfect she's in this jenna ortega who was just recently in the new scream movie is also in it and then mia goth she's the lead there's a lot that i liked about this movie i just wish it went a lot further if you watch the trailer for this movie i think it promises a lot more than it actually delivers it is not the like bam 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 fast pace kind of thing that the trailer offers it's not nearly as explicit as the trailer makes it out to be it seems like part of the reason why it is getting universal praise though it almost sounds like it's exploitation light where it's exploitation to an accessible degree yes yeah so like it's exploitation for normies basically it's like if you made rob zombie more palatable yes yeah yeah yeah. i mean fine like there are probably a lot of our listeners that are probably not going to watch either of the cannibal movies we're going to discuss but like they could watch this movie and kind of at least get a little bit of a taste of that exploitation and like understanding so maybe that's where it thrives but yeah i mean i understand where you're coming from like if if it's a movie about them trying to shoot a porn movie and a slasher starts happening in the middle of it and it's trying to pay homage to the original texas chainsaw like yeah you're gonna need to like up the intensity i think the other thing i think is catching people off guard and this is one of those things that I'm just too movie jaded at this point. These are the things that, like, I instantly see it and I kind of call it out right away. But there's a gimmick in this movie as well. And I am not going to say what it is. I will tell you afterward if you want to know. But there's a gimmick that happens in this movie that I 100% saw through the instant it happened. And I think that honestly shoots the movie in the foot as well, too. It's interesting. It's intriguing. And it's like, oh, that's very clever kind of thing for a lot of people watching it. But I was instantly pulled out of the movie because I knew exactly what was happening. And I just, from that instant, started questioning why it was happening. What was the purpose behind it? Was this just like a fun haha kind of, I want to do this for the sake of doing it kind of thing? And that's all I'll say, I guess. You could get a little prickly with your horror picks. So, you know, you are a little set in your ways. I'll play devil's advocate. Like I said, I'll I'll tell you what the gimmick is afterward. Oh, no, I... That's uh, that's fine. I just mean like yeah. Ty West movies not working for you, but everything I see about Ty West otherwise is universally praised. Yeah, it's fun to me to see like your tastes unfold as we record through this podcast episode by episode because like I have thrown up ideas to you and you've kind of poo pooed them. But lots of other people like them. Right? A lot of people exactly. like them. Yeah, yeah. So cool. Well, 
Aaron, uh, since we're on my recommendations, I have a fucking bone to pick with you, bud. Okay. Peek behind the curtain. Anyone who went back and listened through our reanimator episode with friend of the show, Damien, you know, son of <laughs> Satan himself. Thank you, by the way, for the signed autographed picture that you sent me of Carolyn Williams and Toby Hooper that is signed by Carolyn Williams. Thank you. That's pretty fucking cool. Yeah, that's pretty fucking cool. But anyway, I have a bone to pick with you. I had more than one recommendation when we recorded that episode yes and only one fucking recommendation was actually on the episode that came out correct yeah 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 so i don't give a shit we're gonna start with that recommendation you cut out for <laughs> me I, I told you to do it yeah yes. i told you bring it up on the next can't episode can't believe it uh no i understand we were i mean we we're had running. a three and a half hour conversation <laughs> yeah. i needed to edit something <laughs> So, uh, speaking of, like, underground stuff, and I do consider this horror-related music, and it is done by an underground metal band, and it's since become kind of an underground metal iconic album. My first recommendation is the album When the Kite String Pops by the band Acid Bath. Yes! Yeah. Great album! So fucking good. Acid Bath rules. It's a shame what happened with the bassist. The bassist died way too soon, and the band broke up after that. Um, I think they only have two LPs. Uh, but when the kite string pops, first off, if you're wondering, well, how is this really to horror? The fucking album artwork alone is the Pogo the Clown, John Wayne Gacy painting that he made while he was on death row. Acid Bath itself, the frontman of the band is a guy named Dax Riggs. And Aaron and I grew up around the New Orleans area. I'm from New Orleans. Aaron only lived like an hour and a half, two hours away. Dax Riggs, for anyone in the music scene in around New Orleans and Louisiana in general, know him. Yeah, he is he's played all over. Played all over. He's played every genre of music, too. I think he started off with Acid Bath. Was Acid Bath his first like music project? Mm, I believe so. Yeah. This album specifically even is regarded as one of the key pillars to uh, sludge metal and the start of sludge metal. Dax Riggs lyrics are somehow both insane fucking nightmare fuel and like beautifully surreal at the same time same with his singing he goes from like the traditional like metal growling to just legit kind of like hypnotic singing voices track to track song to song each song keeps you on your toes it kind of subverts your expectations his lyrics are like the type of shit that you'd expect to find like scratched into the wall of an abandoned mental asylum yes yes 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I read on like Reddit and like on Rate Your Music, people's takes. And the take is a lot of it is deeply personal, but also a lot of it is meant to be like a fucking bad acid trip nightmare. Um, yeah. And my favorite song, honestly, off this album is Scream of the Butterfly. And it's like probably one of the softest, if not the softest song on it. But there's just something so fucking creepy and beautiful about that song. Blue, the first track on the album, Rules. That's a great sludge metal classic. Cassie Eats Cockroaches is the last track on this theme, and that song is fucking manic ridiculousness that samples David Lynch. song god machine begins with a spoken word poem and that song is all about critiquing of religion given that they are from like Met- or they formed in metairie louisiana which is right by new orleans there's a little bit of catholicism imagery in this i know uh dax includes a lot of animism in his lyrics as well as other just kind of like blood sex blasphemy and other taboo kind of topics i i think this album is great it's not for everybody but if you're a metalhead of any kind especially if you love sludge metal and you have not listened to When the Kite String Pops, you really need to do yourself a favor and fucking listen to this album and listen to Acid Bath in general. They're underground metal royalty at this point. Yeah. Hell yeah. Innovators. They really are. Like Finger paintings of the insane and Jezebel are two like favorites of mine on that album too. Yeah. I'm a big fan of that. And it's funny because you don't find a lot of like Acid Bath fans, you know? I mean, at least I don't. Not not like my circles. They're like, who the hell is that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely think Derek and I have a love for that band simply because we were in the area and it's kind of one of those bands that's known around this part generally but definitely it's a band that like it cracks me up whenever i see people online like oh man i just found this band where have they been this entire time it's like i mean they've been here and they influenced a lot of other bands yeah. yeah and that's the thing like dax riggs there's probably a lot of famous bands that have gone on to a lot more fame and fortune than he did but they would probably say he was a huge influence on them and acid bath in general i, I know growing up as a kid kid around New Orleans, I remember seeing this album and seeing this artwork way before I knew it was actually a John Wayne Gacy painting. I would just always was like, oh, the acid bath painting? <laughs> For some reason, somehow, I never I've missed Dax Riggs, or if I've seen him live, if he's open for someone, I didn't realize who it was. And that's kind of crazy to me, given how much music output he has done, especially in the New Orleans area over like the last several years is insane. And he's always constantly playing like a lot of the venues that you and I used to frequent a lot, Aaron. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, he played in town a lot, too, when we were in college. And just, yeah. you know, if we were around, he was constantly rolling through town. Yeah, I mean, he played at the venue that was, like, literally two blocks from my house. Yeah. So, yeah, he was just kind of always around in the area. Yeah. Sludge metal, Pioneers. There's hints of stoner metal, death metal, and southern metal in this album, too. Uh, but, yeah, check out When the Kite String Pops by Acid Bath. Good shit. Yeah, very good. Their other album, Pagan Terrorism Tactics, that cover art was done by Jack Kevorkian, the uh, the Suicide Doctor. Yes, yep. yeah, I saw that. That album is actually on my list of albums I'm, I'm kind of burning through right now, so I will probably bring that album up as well on a future episode as a recommendation uh, when I get to it. Uh, my second recommendation is a movie. It's one you can actually watch for free on YouTube, at least at the time of this recording. I know it was also on Netflix, maybe. It's a 2019 documentary called Tread. Yeah. Directed by Paul Solette. This is some wild shit. It is all about Marvin Haymeyer, the guy who built the fucking murder bulldozer and rampaged through a town and uh, like Killdozer. The Killdozer in Granby, Colorado. I loved this documentary. It was actually really well done because the creepiest fucking part about it is they have his whole manifesto because he recorded it on audio logs and they play his manifesto through the entire documentary and kind of line it up with bits and pieces of what brought him to decide to do this. It starts off in the early 90s, like when he first arrives in this small town, Granby, Colorado. It shows kind of both sides, actually. I will say, like, Marvin sounds like he was a mentally disturbed, let's just say. <laughs> but it does show that there might have been some truth to, like, him getting fucked over in certain ways. What I liked is it didn't try and honor him like he's some kind of hero, but it also, like, left it up to the air. Did he actually have some justifiable complaints? And it kind of all boils down to, like, local politics, American politics in general just being so fucked and really it's more about power than anything else. Yes. It kind of gives this argument of who is actually really at fault here. Marvin definitely is mostly at fault <laughs> but yeah. the people in the documentary who like also very much deny it except for like you know a couple people that were very close to Marvin who also were siding with him. I think it does a good job balancing that of letting you decide if he had any justification whatsoever but also still kind of showing you like he was mentally disturbed. He probably over exaggerated quite a lot etc personally I'm more of in the middle I think he was mentally disturbed but he probably did get fucked over a little bit and then kind of blew it out of proportion but that's just my take that I took away from it blew it out of proportion but aka it's... he uh, reinforced a fucking bulldozer <laughs> with concrete and metal beams and cameras so that he could literally seal himself inside with oxygen tanks and he was completely impenetrable and then rolled that motherfucker down the main street of <laughs> A town. <laughs> Let's get to the actual like Killdozer event. So if you have never heard about the story, do yourself a fucking favor and just Google Killdozer or Killdozer Marvin or whatever and read about it. Watch the video. Have they fully covered him on last podcast yet? No. I know they've, they've talked, talked about, about him several times, but have they actually had like an episode yet? Wow. Okay. The thing that's wild to me is no one was killed in this rampage. Yeah. He tore yeah. down like six or seven pretty important buildings of like <laughs> around Colorado and not a single person was killed. One of the I mean besides him. Yeah, besides <laughs> him. But like the one thing that I kinda had to fucking laugh at the absurdity of it, because they show all the footage that was recorded of like during his rampage. At one point the police are literally like jogging next to the killdozer, like shooting at it and like nothing is penetrating. Yeah, they're trying to find like its fucking weak spot. <laughs> 
straight up is yeah. none. There's not a window no. to look out of. He's got like the yeah the surveillance cameras, so that he didn't even have to have a window or anything. Dude, the craziest part was when that police officer was on the top of it, thinking like there was a latch that he could <laughs> shoot into or something, and then there was nothing there. Yeah, and then this police officer's just trapped riding the killdozer yes, a good yeah. few minutes. But yeah, Treaded is a pretty fucking amazing documentary covering this entire story. The last thirty to forty minutes of the documentary are all his rampage. There is a lot of crazy ass footage from that. It's a miracle he didn't blow up that like one gas tanker because he had that fifty cal sticking out of the back of the killdozer and he was trying to shoot that gas tanker at one point. Yeah. Really fucking interesting documentary, and it's readily available. Like I said, I watched the whole thing for free on YouTube. Last thing I'm going to bring up, and this is more of an all ages, me being dad recommendation. And Andrew, I probably shouldn't have hit you up, but I uh, I was a big family thing. I didn't have much time. I was actually in Anaheim recently, and we went to Disneyland, and we did both parks. We got the park hopper pass for a couple days and did both parks. And I took my daughter and a couple of my other family, and we went on the Haunted Mansion. Yes. Yeah. And Magic Kingdom. Love it. Dude, the Haunted Mansion fucking rules as like an all ages horror fest. First off, I didn't realize it was in the New Orleans area, which was kind of fucking funny that we were, we found ourselves back there. Um, and they did a good job of that whole area, making it kind of spooky and French Quarter like and everything else. But the Haunted Mansion surprisingly had some pretty good scares that are pretty tolerable for all ages. My daughter, who doesn't really know better at this point because she's too young, was like captivated by all the noise and lights the effects that they do with the ghosts are really cool yes yeah, yeah. I, I didn't get a chance to but i really wanted to look up how the ride operates as a whole and like how it actually works and like kind of the tricks of the uh, that they pull on you don't get me started on this there's so much history and so much awesome stuff to get into yeah. about how they created all the effects like how they imagined yeah. it i love the haunted mansion so much you know i'm a florida boy i used to have friends that worked for disney and we would always get free passes because they work for Disney and I love Haunted Mansion so much so good yeah yeah. it was a fucking blast and dude I mean if you want to talk horror the fucking thing starts with somebody killing themselves yes yeah <laughs> yeah and you go from there and then the whole ride is all about if you die here you get to stay here and party with all of us forever like a haunted mansion uh, the other cool thing though is that there is a little bit of a dark history to this uh, there's actually a lot of dark history around Disney in general but I know with this ride it's said that this ride is actually infamous for being the one that people try and spread their ashes yes. of dead ones on the most yes. which yeah, is yeah. so yep. fucking weird and macabre it's that and pirates of the caribbean yeah yeah and made me think because i didn't look up like as to why that's the case but it made me like wonder if do people think if they spread their dead loved ones ashes in the haunted mansion their spirit can now become a part of the haunted mansion because like that's what the ride is yes. kind of all about yeah. yeah when we went we were at disney world in florida back in october i don't think i mentioned this to you derek but the second time that that Heather and I wrote it, it broke down while we were in the middle of it. So as far <laughs> oh, as, nice. oh, how do all these things work, right? We basically got to see the entire inside of it as it was breaking and stopping and it would kind of then turn back on and the whole tram would move and you'd go to the next area and then it would break and stop. And so we were just getting to watch the entire thing on a loop, you know, because it just restarts as, yeah. you know, the next chunk of people come in. So we got to see the entire thing 
occasionally the lights would come on for that area and you could kind of see the mechanism. So honestly, we got an entire, oh, this is how everything works. Pretty cool view of it. You know, the, the ride is consistently moving at a speed where, you know, it's purposely kind of shuttling you through so that it keeps going and you don't have a ton of time to really take in all the details. But man, there's so much packed into that ride. There's so many little things that you don't see until you've ridden it a gajillion times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A lot of fun. And it's just amazing that that ride's been around for decades now. Yes. And yeah. it's still just fucking amazing to see. Yeah, with minimal changes, too. Yeah. Yeah. On that note, if you're in a Galaxy's Edge, definitely ride Rise of the Resistance. That ride's also fucking ridiculous and awesome. If you want a good stretch of old ride, old tech, new ride, cutting edge tech, like that's a good spread of stuff to check out for sure. Yeah, I've got one other recommendation actually like in the vein of that especially it's like family friendly uh, I'm kind of a sucker for like kids horror you know like yeah. goosebumps and stuff yeah. there was a couple of books that came out fairly recently where it was like Tales from the Haunted Mansion and it's on Audible and it's two sets of two they put two books into like the audiobook and they're they're actually like really good the first one's called The Fearsome Foursome and Midnight at Madame Leota's and the other one's called Tales from the Haunted Mansion Volumes 3 and 4. And they're actually pretty good, you know, to pass the time. I don't know. I th- there's something, like, pure about kids' horror. It's still scary. You're just not having people's, yeah, like, it's eyes getting gouged yeah. out and dicks cut off and their guts ripped out and eaten. Well, it's fucking funny you bring that up because literally earlier today, just for the fun of it, don't even know why. This is a weird synchronicity. I was like, man, you know what was rad? The old Goosebumps covers, like the original run of Goosebumps. So I looked up all the covers and then I looked up that artist earlier today and like I'm going to go back and actually like look at all the artwork of each book because like I have read a shit ton of Goosebumps as a kid. That artwork's rad as fuck and some of it is genuinely unsettling Yeah, because it's done in like that late 90s MS Paint kind of style of the best we could do with digital effects at that time. So there's a weird 90s edge and surrealness to each of them. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought that up. I'm also going to check out those Tales from the Haunted Mansion because that sounds great. I will admit I was a bit of a humbug when we first went into like Disney. I was like, oh, it's, you know, whatever theme parks who yeah. gives a shit. And then once I actually like got into Disney, the bug bit me and I was like, fuck, I'm just like everyone else. This place can be pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. And the Haunted Mansion was like a total blast. Oh, yeah. I was floored with how balanced the horror was for all ages. It was amazing. Yeah. So listeners who may not want to stick around, that's totally understandable. Thank you for listening thus far. Uh, We are going to get into talking about Cannibal Holocaust, Cannibal Ferox, and just the cannibal subgenre of horror from here on out. So thank you for sticking with us. And those of you who are going to listen on, you know, here we go. Time to talk some cannibals, guys. Yeah, we're going from uh, family friendly to uh, not very safe for life, period. Yeah, the most vile shit you're ever going to like actually have to talk with somebody about. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, here, Aaron, I guess we'll put a taste at least for Holocaust or Ferox or both right here. Yep. Here we go. A taste. <laughs> <laughs> nice. The following feature is one of the most violent films ever made. There are at least two dozen scenes of barbaric torture and sadistic cruelty graphically shown. But the presentation of disgusting and repulsive subject matter upsets you. Please, do not view this film. But I know they... I know they, uh, They followed us and we lost everything trying to escape. We're screwed, we're trapped! 
Watch it, Alan. I'm shooting. Oh, good lord. It's... It's unbelievable. It's... It's horrible. I can't understand the reason for such cruelty. Yeah, once again, uh, sorry about the miscommunication between Holocaust and Ferox. Just for those keeping score at home, I have only seen Cannibal Holocaust, and I've seen it recently. Aaron, you've seen both Holocaust and Cannibal Ferox, and yep. you've watched Holocaust more recently. Andrew, I'm guessing you've watched both as well, but you watched Ferox most recently. Yes, so sir. with that in mind, uh, the first thing we always ask when we have a guest on, what is it about Holocaust, Ferox, and just Italian cannibal exploitation movies in general? Like, what is it that that made you choose this genre, Ferox in your case, and or Holocaust. You know, like what is it about like this horror subgenre that really clicks for you? You know, it's like I said before, it's the oppressiveness of the jungle. You know, the setting, even more so than the antagonists. Yeah, it's scary. It's the survival aspect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Once you like step foot into the jungle past a certain point, it is survival because everything's trying to kill you. You've got skeeters to give you malaria. You've got <laughs> poisonous snakes <laughs> big cats depending on where you are you got like gorillas and shit spiders yeah it, you know it's like australia where it's like everything is just made to like kill you and eat you and consume you it's like the ultimate horror zone you know yeah the only other like scarier environment i can think of is like a deep cave but that's just claustrophobia if you can keep your wits about you you could probably survive that but with uh jungle there's so much more working against you even more than just a bloodthirsty cannibal tribe and even when you think you're safe from like the creatures or in the case of like Holocaust and Ferox, the people, you always have the elements against you. And there's the unspoken thing that probably would kill the most people is dehydration. Yes, right. Yeah. That was something that when watching Holocaust that really like this movie does a good job and sounds like it was a fucking nightmare during production too. everyone looks miserable. <laughs> everyone looks like they are yeah. drenched in like layer after layer of sweat. They've been bitten alive by tons of insects. It really captures that sticky, hot fucking feeling. Yeah. Most of the movie took place during the day and it looked fucking terrible nightmare. So like it kind of leaves it to the imagination. Like, what is this God forsaken? place like at night yeah. too that's absolutely an aspect of this because there's just something intriguing about watching a movie where you know a hundred percent that production was fucking miserable yeah i've mentioned it before but even the movie southern comfort which is not a horror movie i mean it's a weird action thriller that's a bunch of national guard guys in the swamps of louisiana like being hunted by rednecks right that movie looked miserable because it's just rain and swamp and mud and water up to your chest there's not a single fucking jungle movie i've 
ever seen where the production was probably smooth and easy. <laughs> like, even watching stuff like William Friedkin's Sorcerer or watching Werner Herzog's Fitzcarraldo or Aguirre, Wrath of God, just, it looks miserable. Yeah. And these movies are exactly the same. Like, you don't catch any vibes of they had a perfectly fine shoot, everything was well, oh, this is on a sound stage. it's safe, right? Like, there's yeah. never any of that. And so there's just this element of this movie's dangerous. This movie's on the edge already before we even get into like the controversial stuff. There is already that sense of place that puts you as an audience member kind of right on the edge. Yeah, because they're even the water's trying to kill you. Yeah. In Green Inferno, the production of Green Inferno, which is a fucking legit Hollywood thing. It wasn't, you know, an exploitation film. It was a legit Hollywood production and the cast was getting dysentery and stuff. Yeah. They had a very not fun time just filming the damn movie there's just something about that environment that it's like so oppressive and so adversarial to like the human condition i really love the vibes you get there yeah yeah for sure and i'm sure that's a common thing in the cannibal boom in general but it's something that always stuck out with me while watching holocaust was the people who are relatively knowledgeable of the area constantly referring it to as the green inferno what's going to be the thing that's going to maybe take my life today is it going to be the snake bite is it going to be the the water is it going to be the heat to the point where the guides the people who like know the area and even one one of the ones who kind of knows the language of one of the local tribes even they are like I could die today or like they come across the corpse of the other guide from earlier and the one guide who knew him was like what claimed you what in the green inferno claimed you that is ridiculous and I think what really kind of sets up the brutality of this movie is the backdrop of the jungle to the point where like you know there is nothing sacred here that's kind of what I, I really was finding when watching through holocaust is like no taboo was off the table nothing was so insane that they couldn't do it going back to when i was eating the chicken nuggies the <laughs> scene that was playing was the fucking turtle scene oh. the scene uh, from holocaust where they legitimately on screen real life animal cruelty kill a turtle and it was damn near nauseating like yeah okay we can always be like this fucking like people out there being like oh holocaust is that bad i don't give a shit like animal cruelty is uh, real animal cruelty and even insinuated animal cruelty in movie is always going to get me but this was fucking real and as real as you can get and as someone who like has a medical background not necessarily in animals but like and just knowing how innards really look fuck it was a punch in the gut yeah yeah Yeah, that's that's brutal yeah that turtle scene Woo! That's hard to sit through. Because even like during one of the rape scenes in the movie, yeah, there's rape in this movie too, guys. Yeah, um, just whatever the worst shit is that probably gets on you a little bit, it's probably in yeah, yeah. any of these movies, yeah. I, I've got a note here I was going to say. It's like, this movie has everything. Castration, decapitation, eye gouging, tit hooks, animal cruelty, man-eating piranhas, sexual violence, regular violence, jaywalking iguanas, cocaine, and cannibalism. <laughs> that was my thing for Ferox, which is also a lot of crossover. With the exception of the iguanas and the tit hooks, all of that is in Cannibal yeah. Holocaust yeah. as well. And then on top of Holocaust, then you have yuppie, like, fucking Hollywood producers trying to, like, cannibalize. There was an eye rolling moment at the very end of Holocaust where he says, are we the cannibals? <laughs> <laughs> or are they the can?" And it's like, okay. Are we the assholes? In general, that 
seems to be so much of what the crux of all these Italian cannibal movies are, is who's the real savage? Us or them? (laughs) And like that seems to always kind of be what these movies come down on. I wonder who the real cannibals are. So all of this said, I think maybe a good place for us to start as far as just having this conversation as a whole, like, where do these movies come from? Why was this a fucking thing? I'm generally fascinated how we got to this, yeah. L- let yeah. me put on my, like, hold on, hold on. <laughs> there, my f- fucking film student hat. All right, so there is a weird kind of sub-genre that was popular in Italy, but also Spain, Greece, other places throughout Europe. There's like a weird fucking subgenre known as Mondo, mm-hmm. right? Which yes. is the Italian word for world. This was like a weird, in air quotes, documentary film style that was just kind of a, hey, let's take a tour of the world and let's look at weird cultural anomalies and let's look at taboo rituals. Let's look at, you know, weird animal fighting and things that involve sex and death and just generally taboo subjects for sensational compilations, essentially. Yeah, the furthest extreme of exploitation yeah they're always this weird blend of part travelogues to these exotic locales part showcase for sensationalized local customs and stuff but again some real some is real documentary footage right some is actually like oh we literally did film these animals killing each other some of it is staged right a lot of it is just we made this shit up for shock value (laughs) yeah very faces of death Yeah, exactly, right? And it's kind of passed off as being real. A very big plot point in Holocaust, actually, of, like, staging stuff. Yes. The most successful Mondo movie is Mondo Kane from 1962. That is kind of widely considered to be the foundational film of the entire subgenre, although it wasn't the first. But that's one that was wildly popular. Critics around the world kind of recognized it. It was a big deal. 1962. Yeah, it won awards. For yeah. the, the music, I believe, right? Yeah. And yeah. there were tons and tons of knockoff movies. Again, like you just mentioned, the Faces of Death movies from the late 70s and 80s are another well-known example that claim to be real-life compilations of deaths and shit caught on camera, but a lot of it is staged. Mm, yeah. But yeah, like the word Mondo became a very easy marketing descriptor, yes. right? And title of a lot of these movies that had similar vibes. That's the progenitor. That's kind of where these cannibal movies evolved out of. There were certainly early examples, right? So like Man from Deep River that is made by Umberto Lindsay, who directed Cannibal Ferox. Yes, yeah. That is kind of considered to be the first of the Italian cannibal movies. And we thought about picking that movie, Andrew. Yeah. But we honestly weren't sure if we would have enough talk about that movie specifically, uh, other than it being like the progenitor to all these cannibal Italian horror movies. So instead, we decided Ferox or Holocaust. Yeah, it's just not as well known. Yeah. And it's yeah. not as easily accessible. And honestly, as much shit as I've seen, 
I haven't seen it. That's just what I never got around to because I knew like all these other ones were more well known. I mean, I've seen most of the Italian jungle horror movies. They almost like swap footage for like parts of it. I know that there's some stuff in Man from Deep River that was in, I believe, uh, Mountain of the Cannibal God. Yep. Yeah, they have these Mondo vignettes where it's like, you know, they filmed some fucked up thing that these like, you know, indigenous people will, I mean, you know, it's fucked up to us, but it's just part of their daily life. And, you know, they filmed them doing this and then it just got recycled through each film. Like there's a turtle scene in Ferox as well. There's a scene where they slaughter a turtle yep. alive in Ferox as well. And then I'm not 100% certain if it's the exact same footage as from Holocaust, but I wouldn't be surprised if it is because that was just kind of a thing that they did. I don't know if it is or not because I'm honestly not 100% sure which cut of Ferox I've even yes. seen. I don't know if I've seen like an original edit of that movie or if the version I saw was a censored version. I watched whatever was on yeah. Shudder um, most recently years ago. I mean, I saw the movie when I was in high school. Speaking of Shudder, that's how I watch Cannibal Holocaust and it is the full version. Nice. It's yeah. like unedited yeah. full version. So uh, everything that we're talking about in this episode is readily available, <laughs> yeah. which is wild considering like the content. way more mainstream <laughs> movies have not been at all able to find. Yeah. Right? It's interesting because Shudder, at least for Holocaust, and I'm sure it's the same with Ferox or whatever other cannibal movies they have, they do put a disclaimer that I have never seen on any other Shudder content saying like, you know, these are very subversive, boundary-pushing films for those of you who are a little bit squeamish or, or don't want to watch, you know, stop here. And then, but they say like, you know, we think these movies are totally rad and want to show them completely unfiltered. That's how I knew like Holocaust was going to be the whole thing. I was actually kind of hoping I could find the animal cruelty version but i was like you know what fuck it it's readily available here on shutter i'll watch it and yeah i don't know if i'd care to see that scene ever again but like i'm glad i kind of watched the whole thing as it was meant to be watched yeah. in a weird way I can appreciate this movie as a work of art because I know there's an argument of are these films works of art, which I think they are. I agree. I agree. While I'm not the biggest fan, and that's to put it lightly, of the animal cruelty, I do feel like it blurs the line and it kind of prepares your brain for the later gore with the humans and stuff. Yeah. It makes it much more believable, which is why I think a lot of people kind of fell for the famous marketing of Holocaust, where famously... Yeah. The director of Holocaust, Deodato, he um, had all the actors sign like NDAs and sign agreements that they would just disappear for like six months. For a year. Yeah. And yeah. then when yeah. he went and promoted the stuff, he's like, yeah, these people actually died, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And famously had to prove to multiple police agencies that like, nah, this isn't actually, I didn't actually kill them. Like, they are actually alive. Yeah. Oh, well, it's even more wild than that. And it, it is crazy that literally just 20 years later, they would be doing the same exact marketing stunt for Blair Witch, yeah. Yeah. right? So 10 days after Holocaust premiered in Milan, authorities seized all the prints they could get their hands on. Diodato was arrested and the producers and the writer were arrested on obscenity and violence charges. <laughs> yeah. Copies of the film managed to still get to the UK and France. And then tabloids start spreading the idea that, oh, everything in this is real. And that the deaths are real. The sexual assault was genuine. And so then they were like, oh shit, now we're going to charge you with murder. Yeah. And so he literally had to reach out to the actors and say, hey, I need y'all to go on a fucking talk show to say, hey, we're still alive. Here we are. And then, yeah, he had 
had to physically prove in court how the special effects worked yes. to show, hey, we did not actually kill somebody. And despite all of that, the film was still banned and they still got four fucking months commuted sentences for obscenity. They still what? got charged with obscenity and like actually convicted. I think Holocaust and Ferox are both still banned in certain countries yes. as well yeah. to this day. Oh, totally, totally. Because Ferox had all the same exact kind of knee-jerk, oh my god, reaction. Yeah, yeah, well, the legal version in the UK is still has six minutes cut from it. Yeah. yeah. What better uh, promotion can you get than that? Yeah, yeah. seriously, right? I, I mean, I, I know that you haven't seen Ferox, Derek, but I think Ferox is the best out of all of the ones. But the the reason that Holocaust is kind of considered the, the best of the whole genre is because of this promotion tactic. Yeah, I would say, like, I agree with you, Andrew. Ferox is honestly my favorite of these, and that's this is a subgenre that honestly is not my bag. I even told Derek from the beginning, I didn't really ever want to touch these movies. I just don't. There's so many other horror movies to do. Unless we had a guest. And that's that what I told him. I was like, unless yep. we have a guest that wants to do it. I just don't care to do it because it's not my subgenre. We found our magical guest in Andrew Parker. Yes. <laughs> We're lucky that I know all of the history about all of them because we had this mix up. But yeah, I agree with you that Ferox. I think is the one that I would go back to and watch the most often because it is a movie. It feels like a movie. It is structured like a movie. And I think it's the most entertaining is like a fucking weird word to use for this movie, right? With literal tit hooks and a pig being yeah. killed. But it's the most entertaining and it is the most movie in air quotes, right? Holocaust, though, I think is the most important. Yeah. If, you know, if we're going to like, it, like in air quotes, it is the most important, like historically and to the entire conversation of censorship, what is art and how far is too far? Like it is the most kind of historical, if you're going to put a list together of important movies to the foundational art history of film, it's on that list. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's just not as enjoyable of a watch. Yeah. Well, it, it's totally influential on the found footage genre as well, right? Yes, 100%. But what, it, it was the first one, right? No, it wasn't the first found footage movie, but it was one of the first really big sensational ones. And to our earlier point, it was the first to really use the idea of found footage in a marketing ploy kind of way. Yeah, that really yeah. gets people kind of brought in and, okay, what is this about? That's what blew me away about Holocaust was I didn't know that the plot was basically about producers recovering a documentary footage and like yeah. this anthropologist going to like the tribe to like basically try and get their remains as well as the evidence as to what happened to them and then him battling with this entertainment company who want to use it to make a documentary i did not know any of that about the plot of holocaust and that was actually like fucking fascinating to see from a 1980 movie of basically like blair witch way before blair witch yes, was a yeah, thing totally the pacing of the movie is really weird that was a big criticism i saw a lot of people say was the pacing of you see like kind of half the journey into the jungle then you're transported back to new york or wherever he is meeting with the executives and it goes back and forth between that and then you finally see the actual like fucked up footage that they shot uh, when they were attacked by the tribe you also see the evidence of the filmmakers themselves being monsters 
I thought going into it, it was just going to be like, no, this is just a film team like going out into the jungle. And then this is just you just watch all this horrible shit happen to them. I had no idea about like all this other subtext and stuff, which is wild to me that the director was like, no, I just wanted to make a sensational Hannibal movie when he has all this other shit happening, dealing with executives and everything. Now, Ferox, a couple questions for you guys, specifically you, Andrew. With Ferox, Lindsay, like, did he get arrested or did he get in any kind of trouble for that movie or was it mostly just banned? in certain countries i mean he got in trouble from the standpoint of oh god you're a vile person how dare you make this kind of movie like he got raked over the coals of public opinion yeah but most of his career was that anyway right i mean most of any horror movie director's career is that um and obviously the film was banned fucking left right and center you know it, it was controversial for all the same things there was real animal violence in the movie there was sexual assault in the movie there's really insane gore in the movie i mean it's all the same kind of stuff but he was not to my knowledge he was not like arrested yeah, for yeah. any of it not the way diodato no, was yeah. yeah actually uh there's a scene where they kill a pig in the movie and there was famously for people who know about it the, uh, an argument between the actor and the director yeah and i think it went a little something like this. I'm not going to kill the pig. And then Lindsay's, you, know, <laughs> you are going to kill the pig. And then Radice, who is the main actor, you know, I'm not going to do it. And then uh, Lindsay famously said, Bobby and De Niro would do it. And then Radice said, De Niro would kick you ass back all the way to Rome. <laughs> yeah. And weirdly enough, in Holocaust, same exact thing. Carl Thomas York, the actor, was like, no, I'm not fucking killing this pig. Yeah. And he had the same kind of argument with Diodato over it. Same exact fucking situation. I guess there's something about cute pigs, right? You know what's fascinating about with the, the pig and the, the violence with the turtle? That's not the tribes doing it. It. that's the actual like actors yeah, or, yeah. like film crew and stuff yeah yeah the film crew doing it and like because at one point in holocaust after like they behead the turtle i want to say that i forget her name but the actress her character pukes but i want to say that's genuinely her fucking puking <laughs> her guts out i think it is it yeah. probably was because apparently everybody the cast the crew everybody was fucked up by that turtle kill yeah it was fucking brutal because yeah, in holocaust that one was really extreme like yeah. in ferox it, it went wasn't way along like, yeah extreme, but in cannibal holocaust like holy shit man it's like i i can see it in my mind's eye right now dude it kept it kept going like that's yeah, the thing it just like went and went and went yeah. Oh, okay, we're gonna, like, bludgeon it to death. Oh, it's not quite dead. Now we're gonna remove its shell. Oh, we're actually seeing the whole fucking process of removing its shell. There's its guts. Oh, now we're gonna behead it. Oh, now we're gonna cut off all its appendages. Yeah. Yeah, and it just kept going, and I don't know the laws in Italy for, like, animal cruelty, but, like, that would be the one that I feel like he would actually get fucking bagged on would be that, but... I, I assume they're pretty lax based on uh, the history. They've got to yeah. be pretty lax, because there are a ton of Italian movies that have real animal violence. I mean, frankly, we're going to cover Deep Red eventually. That movie also has a scene where they, like, kill a lizard. Then you see the lizard, like, flipping around and everything else. There's a weird part of this whole thing that I think is interesting to talk about in terms of decency and you know, the animal cruelty and the morality side of it, and obviously the censorship side of it, because, you know, frankly, there's lots of mainstream movies that 
also feature animal cruelty that we don't fucking talk about, right? For instance, Apocalypse Now, one of the greatest movies ever made. They kill a fucking cow at the end of that movie. You know, it is for a ritual scene, and they eat the cow, and it is this big, giant festival ceremony thing, but you still see a cow get killed. Tampopo, which is a fucking delightful Japanese kind of food-based rom-com-y kind of thing. There is a scene where they kill a turtle in that, but it is very like, here's turtle, slap on table, chop head off, cut open, drain blood, cool, now we're making turtle soup. Like, it's very clinical and in a restaurant environment kind of setting, right? And, you know, if you eat meat of any kind, you gotta reckon with the fact that you're constantly responsible for animal death yourself, whatever, right? That's just part of living in modern society and fucking eating food. So th- it's weird that... Well, I think the argument is the context of the like, It is, rest and that, of that's film. what I'm getting yeah. at. Yeah, that's what I'm getting at is there is, you know, a difference in the context. We had this conversation years ago when I was in school of, okay, well, why is that acceptable and this is not? Yeah. Well, it's all context, right? This feels like you're watching a fucking kid torture and kill an animal in the backyard. And that's not cool? right like that's not the same thing that's not the same as here is a chicken i'm gonna eat this chicken for dinner and then you proceed to kill that fucking chicken it's not the same thing well don't get me started on uh adventures of milo and otis (laughs) oh yeah exactly right (laughs) you think those animals are having a good time yeah all like fucking 90 of them that died during the production (laughs) of that movie yeah so uh, there is like a weird thing there and Diodato claims at least that he regrets his decisions to include all this shit and how they handled it and he even endorses the like animal cruelty free edit of the movie you know I don't know how Lindsay feels about the shit that they put in Ferox necessarily but you know it's one of those things where it's just wild to me I guess that at the time everybody was just like yeah sure no big deal yeah yeah and I love all the stories of the cast and the crews being like, yeah, we all said we didn't want this to happen and we didn't want them to go through with this and we all objected to it, but then it still fucking yeah, happened yeah. and everybody just kept filming, you know? Granted, I did read stories about how, like, at least with Holocaust, because, you know, they did use real indigenous people. Um, I'm assuming they did for Ferox as well. Uh, is yes, that- they did. Yeah, yeah, they did. Yeah, and, like, granted, they're not cannibalistic in the way that the films portray them. Yeah, no, they're all dressed up and everything else. Yeah. Yeah, but they they mostly ate these animals. Yeah, after they killed them on screen, they actually did give them to the tribe for them to like use for food and whatnot. So that was the weird justification I was reading. Granted, I don't think it justifies what we actually see on screen or whatever, but that was kind of an interesting tidbit I saw. Now, Ferox, the difference between this, because like Holocaust has entertainment and the civilized world. What can they like exploit this violence with Ferox? From what I understand of it, because I remember reading a synopsis, there's like a weird drug dealer angle and it has almost like a little bit of an action movie type feel to it. Is is that what you get out of it whenever you watch it? Yeah, yeah. well, it's interesting because in Ferox, there's a B story where like the yeah. main guy, Mike, he's a drug dealer from New York and he has stolen like $100,000 worth of heroin from drug dealers in New York from like the mafia. And he has gone to the... Amazon forest to hide from them because who the fuck wants to go there? You know, like no one's going to chase him. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so when he gets there, he hooks up with a, a you know an indigenous local who says like, "Oh yeah, there's emeralds in this river." Yeah. So then it becomes this: we got to go get the treasure. Yeah, kind of thing. yeah. And and he's all he's all coked out all the time, and so he and he's trying to get them, and then the emeralds does not pan out, like literally, like pan out because they're you know they're they're doing the whole panning for gold thing. Yeah, yeah. And it's like it seems that the guy lied to him about the emeralds, and that the three emeralds that he showed him were the only ones he ever had so he gets mad and he kills him and that angers the tribe and he tortures one of the tribe guys to try to find out where the emeralds are and then the whole tribe sees this he runs away and that's when he meets these protagonists who are uh they're anthropologists well, the the main girl's an anthropologist, and she's doing her thesis for her doctorate, which is ironically about the idea that cannibalism does not exist. Yeah. Blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that it's created by yeah. uh, white people to make this narrative that the indigenous people are savages and thus must be dealt with as though they are animals. That's some fucking wild self-awareness, though, because yeah. that is kind of the case with these movies, right? And how they portray the actual indigenous people. It's yeah. weirdly holding a mirror to itself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the setup, like, or at least the subplot with the emeralds, the way you were describing that, and honestly, like, my brain immediately just went to, like, this sounds like Indiana Jones. Like, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Temple of Doom. It's also interesting, too. Like, both movies have such weird structure. With Holocaust, like we mentioned, the the movie opens with, hey, these kids are missing. They were filming this thing. You, anthropology professor, you need to go find them. And so the whole first part of the movie is this anthropology professor and his guides traipsing through the wilderness. And eventually they come across these tribes and they find the remains of the people and their film canisters. And they earn like their respect and their trust yeah. to get in, which all that was kind of fascinating to watch yeah because it kind of comes down to like the tribes basically reveal that oh yeah no they fucked with us so yeah we killed them but you know whatever yeah, they had it coming. they killed our people they they had it coming right so then the second half of the movie is them taking the film canisters back to new york yeah and watching them and then you're getting this entire secondary story of those four people and their bullshit in the jungle and all the awful things they did which led to their demise so the structure of that one's really strange and then to your point about Ferox, yeah, it's dropping you in and you're kind of then hearing everything as it's going and you're getting an idea of what was going on. But then slowly the guy who's kind of the main antagonist ultimately starts revealing like, no, I actually lied to you about this and this dead body is not who I said it was, right? Yeah, actually I'm a really fucked up. <laughs> you yeah. find out little by little like, oh, this guy is actually the one who is the villain of this entire yeah. Thing, yeah. Well, and it's kind of what happens with the film crew and Holocaust. It's interesting that both yeah. movies really do that. And part of the many like historical controversies of these two films, and probably a lot of the films in the subgenre, is using the actual like indigenous people and then portraying them a certain way but at the same time they give them the justification in the plot of these movies as to why they like do this to these mm -hmm. people yeah. because in holocaust it's pretty fucking awful what those basically film school nerds do yeah. to like that one tribe they like burn their fucking yes, village and yeah. terrorize them then they rape the woman and that's what angers the tribe and like uh, yeah I mean I understand then why these things happen it's interesting that they both kind of sound like yeah they fuck up and they do something 
something they really shouldn't be doing, an act of utter sin, basically, and then that's what angers the natives. And then they find out that the natives, you don't fuck with them like you think you can. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think at the end of the day, too, part of the whole idea of the high morals of Western society and us casting judgment on these indigenous cultures and how backwards they are and how savage they are and blah, 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 right? So much of that kind of commentary partly we get it okay cool we see exactly what you're trying to do but then i think where so much of the controversy is in these movies is half the shit that's in them otherwise it's like you could have done without all this like we could have had the same conversation about let's just say ethics and journalism right without the whole exploitation of primitive cultures right we could have done it without all the animal cruelty i think that's where the biggest part of the controversy is because I don't find these movies pleasant. I don't like watching these movies as much of a horror junkie as I am. But I'm also not going to be one of those people that's like, there is nothing redeeming about any of these movies. They're just... These movies are definitely saying something. Mm -hmm. You know, like, there is certainly a message here. There is a viewpoint here. I mean, Diodato was inspired by all the shit with the Red Brigade and the Years of Lead in Italy and, like, how the Italian media was kind of really unfairly covering a lot of the conflicts with that thing. I mean, so, okay, so the Red Brigade was this far-left Marxist terrorist group, and they were kidnapping people, bank robberies, and assassinations, and all that stuff. Like, they were bad, right? But the media was definitely, like, making it seem way worse, and they were staging a lot of things. It's one of those things where, like, he kind of figured, okay, like, let me kind of comment on this whole thing with this movie. But ultimately, like, it's kind of one of those things where, yeah, okay, there's a lot being said here, but are these themes being handled appropriately to start a dialogue, or is it just crass exploitation? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, very much so. I kind of, again, fall somewhere in the middle. I think there was a time and place for these movies, and they certainly have quite a fan base, and even though Diodato, because I did read this again, he was just saying, like, he was just trying to make the most shock value movie ever, and that there was no hidden message or deeper meaning or themes to it, but, like, then why did you shoot all those all those scenes in New York City and the guy yeah. interacting with the executives like yeah maybe it was done to like lean into the sensational like marketing of the movie I don't know but I do think these movies kind of almost in like a Garth Ennis with comic style way of have something to say and if you strip down like all the crazy fucked upness of it it is something relatively clever and something we all see and know and it's a nice critique but then like what really reels you and grabs your attention is the ultra violence and the ultra exploitation yeah like you with these movies Aaron Garth Ennis is not my bag and as much as I love comics but I completely understand and I still respect a ton of what he has done for the comics industry and like that's kind of like what I feel like at least with Cannibal Holocaust and I'm sure I'd feel the same with Ferox it's uncomfortable it's unsettling to watch but like it made me really appreciate this subgenre and understand why it has these fans Andrew why you like these movies so much like I get it well I've only really seen Holocaust so I still don't know if I would ever reach that same level of appreciation but I am definitely interested now in the subgenre a lot more than I was beforehand and it sounds like both Ferox and Holocaust have a lot on their minds more than even what the directors want to reveal basically well I think too the movies do kind of 
transcend even what they are commenting on and the themes as well just because both movies and the subgenre as a whole is such a lightning rod for these kinds of conversations like we're having right now it's very much about again what is art what is the line between this is appropriate to show the mass public and this is deplorable trash that we never need to see it shouldn't have been exposed to and i would push back that even if you think it's deplorable trash you still have to admit it's art yeah i am a thousand percent think this is art regardless of how you actually feel about it yeah that's what i think is so interesting about these movies ultimately is they are way more than just the individual elements and they're way more than just the sum of the parts like they as a whole are crucial to understanding film as an art form because if you're gonna take the like highest highs and the best expressions of humanity on one end of that spectrum you have to fundamentally then have the other end of that spectrum for comparison's sake and for balance right and so again like going back to the whole ham-fisted question of who are the real savages and is the concrete jungle actually more dangerous than the green inferno blah 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 like you know it's a fun conversation to have and to see where on that spectrum people fall certainly yeah yeah you know you mentioned the concrete jungle i do like the juxtaposition that a lot of these movies like have with yes. new york city and the fucking amazon deep jungle yeah it's an interesting juxtaposition there where you've got these two very different but equally dangerous environments going on yeah now andrew specifically we touched on it a, a bit already like when we were first introducing both these movies and which one you like more but what is it specifically about ferox that catches your eye i know aaron you went into it but like what is it about ferox for you andrew that catches your eye more than holocaust that clicks with you more it's a lot of things i like the music in ferox quite a bit i mean like both of them have pretty iconic soundtracks but i, I really like ferox's music I feel like I hate the antagonist more in Ferox than I do in Cannibal Holocaust. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's way more of a villain, for sure. When you see Cannibal Ferox, you kind of understand what I mean. Because that guy's like a fucking piece of shit. You can't wait to see him. <laughs> uh, and when he dies, he dies a hell of a death. They cut his dick and balls off, and then they um, cauterize the wound so that he doesn't bleed out. Then in his little coup de gras, they have this table with a hole cut out. They put him under it and they stick the top of his head through the hole and it's just the very top of his head is going through the hole and then they secure his chin with a piece of bamboo there so he can't move his head and then they take a machete and they fucking whoosh just whap it across the fucking like thing and they take the top off like dj Khaled. (laughs) (laughs) and they're eating his brains like fucking cannibal yeah it's a pretty solid death for him and, and it's one of those things where like fuck yeah get his ass because he, he's a fucking horrible person i feel like some of the characters in ferox are a little bit more redeemable than the characters in holocaust yeah for sure the thing about that too is there is a little bit of a degree of tragedy with some of the filmmakers that are in that group because it, it really seems like there's one or two of the guys that are like the ringleaders and just like amping everyone up and they have like jungle fever at that point so like they're just going along with it yeah. but like at the same time though 
There's the one part that kind of took me out of the movie, but then I understood at, at the end of Holocaust why they did it was when they went around and like asked family members or like personal friends or whoever, what was this person like? And they all had some shady response. Like the guy's dad says, my son was a piece of shit. Yeah. That uh, nun was like, oh, she was always changing her identity and lying about things and faking. It was almost like weirdly victim blaming yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of. But then you kind of understand why that was in the movie when you see the whole picture but like there still was a little bit of degree of tragedy to like what happens to them whereas it sounds like with Ferox that guy is a total piece of shit villain who gets his yeah. comeuppance no you're rooting for it you're rooting for it when he dies yeah yeah that's a little more rad bringing up the soundtracks actually um, I haven't listened to Ferox I know with Holocaust the main theme which is oddly beautiful and surreal is even on our Spotify playlist for like our podcast for like spooky music is Ferox kind of the same vein is it kind of that surreal weird and then like random like noises and distortion like when something really intense happens or does ferox kind of do its own thing yeah ferox it's a lot of the synth stuff it's a lot more bleak though i feel like because it's like something bad's going to happen yeah but cannibal holocaust is it's not quite as bleak or um you know like foreboding that was something with holocaust that kind of was like made the scenes oddly more intense for me where when really bad shit was on screen be it the animal cruelty or like the end what happens to the film crew specifically like the girl in the film crew and they play that main theme where it's just almost beautiful and then like this horrible awful shit's happening on screen I was wondering if just Ferox pulled that same trick off but like it's interesting both kind of went synthy a little bit I know Holocaust had a little bit of tribalism mixed in but like it was more at least for the time kind of a modern sounding soundtrack which really kind of added a whole nother degree towards it i wonder is that like a common thing in the genre as a whole do a lot of the cannibal movies do that not just ferox and holocaust yeah yeah they, they all kind of do like that synthy um early 80s late 70s thing in them i, I think it's just uh, endemic of you know like the italian horror filmmaking in general yeah, because we've done a little bit of Giallo, and it always seems to be like that kind of spin to it. Yeah. Yeah, it depends on the composer, because sometimes it'll be a little more like 70s funky kind of sounding with just big kind of psycho stings in there. But the Cannibal Holocaust score by Ortolani is very specifically weirdly chill. It really is. It's so unsettling. <laughs>
the theme song has been used in so many fucking things, like kind of as a weird ironic joke. It was just on the like closing credits of an episode of Euphoria. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, so it's totally just one that like everybody kind of knows as a joke now in a memeish kind of way. Like, yeah, the Cannibal Holocaust theme is gorgeous. You know, they just put it in other stuff. But yeah, it depends on who the composer is. It's just that kind of general exploitation movie kind of vibe to most of the scores. And it's the same as, you know, most of Fulci and all those guys. I mean, the, the Argento Goblin movies obviously stand out as being like kind of the cream of that crop for the most yeah. part. But honestly, I kind of like a lot of Ortolani's stuff anyway. Yeah. The team that did Ferox... I can't think of a whole lot off the top of my head that they have done, but that is a good score nonetheless. Yeah, it's Donati, and he did a handful of Lindsay's other stuff like Eaten Alive and one of the Emmanuel movies. Although Fiamma Maglioni did Concord Affair 79, which, okay, let's diverge a little bit and let's talk about the cast. So in the mostly inexperienced American and Italian cast that has to also now act like alongside indigenous tribes people. <laughs> yeah, yes. and both of these movies have a lot of the same weird shit going on. And there's a lot of crossover between these two movies as well. A lot of these people show up in multiple, multiple of these movies. So, weirdly enough, all right, so Concord Affair 79, since we're on this right now. Fucking Robert Kerman, who is in both of these movies. He is the anthropology professor, Harold Monroe in Holocaust. And then he shows up as like one of the police detectives in Ferox. He was an adult film star. Really? He went as R. Bola. Okay. And he was in like 200 adult films. And I mean, including like Debbie Does Dallas and Roberta Finlay stuff like Anyone But My Husband. But he tried tried to go legit and then he was in these like airport movies he was in this like concord 79 movie well, i don't know how you guys feel but like i thought he was really good actually yeah, in, he's in holocaust yeah. he's great in it and it's funny because Lindsay actually went on record saying that if he had known that he was an adult film actor he wouldn't have used him yes. wow it's funny because he was okay with all the animal abuse but he was not cool with a porno actor being in his movie yeah that's like, a little that's a little, that's a little hypocritical yeah <laughs> yeah it's kind of ridiculous yeah it's like well you want to talk about exploitation yeah Come on. and and yet the movie has fucking genital yeah. <laughs> mutilation like what yeah Okay, so, whatever. Concord Affair 79 specifically was one of Diodato's movies, right? This came out, I think, in between. No, I think it might have come out just before, because this is the other weird shit, too. With all these old exploitation movies, they were made super fucking fast, super fucking yeah. cheap. They were all made to, like, crank out profit, 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 make it as fast and cheap as you can. So the wild thing is, Diodato filmed, like, five movies in the course of two years, and there's shit like... Like, uh, House on the Edge of the Park technically was filmed and completed before Holocaust, did not come out until after Holocaust. Like I said, there's just a lot of weird crossover. So that's kind of the first thing is Kerman tried to kind of go legit and get out of adult films. But then because he got stuck in these cannibal movies, and he was also in Eaten Alive as well, uh, another Lindsay movie, he then kind of got sidetracked back into adult films again. But the weird cross 
crossover is this. He is also in Night of the Creeps. He is also in Vic, which is a great short film by Sylvester Stallone's late son, Stage Stallone, who founded Grindhouse Releasing with Bob Murawski, and they have the rights to both of these movies, and they have big deluxe Blu-rays of both of the movies we're discussing. This is fucking wild, and Derek, I've been wanting to tell you this all week. Okay, hit me. Robert Kerman is in fucking Spider-Man. What? Okay. He is in Sam Raimi's 2002 Spider-Man. That is one of his very last credits. He is the tugboat captain during the scene where, like, the sky tram by the bridge is, like, yeah, attacked by okay. Green Goblin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and the yeah. tugboat's going underneath, <laughs> and they, like, drop the tram on the tugboat, right? Like, you literally see him in one scene where he's just like, ah, and then he's like, thumbs up, Spider-Man. There is... No way in hell (laughs) Sam Raimi, the director of Evil Dead 1 and 2, fucking cast this guy on accident, right? Like, that is 1,000% a purposeful cameo. That then got me going down this weird rabbit hole of, oh shit, that original Spider-Man movie has an insane chunk of now famous people and Oscar winners in it who were in it before they were famous. That's a whole other conversation. But yeah, wild to me that the star... Knowing Sam Raimi, like, and how much of a fucking nerd he is. no fucking way, right? But yeah, like... The star of these fucking notorious-ass movies is just in Spider-Man, like, as a cameo, right? Dude, that makes me hope now, like, someone from one of these movies pops up as, like, a five-second cameo in Doctor Strange now. (laughs) Yeah. And then looking at the lead of Cannibal, or the main antagonist, really, in Cannibal Ferox, I mean, he's kind of the main character that you're following through the entire thing at the end of the day. He is Giovanni Lombardo Radici, and he is in, again, a shit ton of crossover stuff so he's in city of the living dead which is fulci and then he's in diodato's house on the edge of the park that i mentioned then cannibal ferox and then cannibal love and then he's in fucking crime movies like deadly impact he's in stage fright and phantom of death he's in michelle suave's the church and the sect which we have discussed before those are weird unofficial sequels to the demons movies there was a lot of those with the italian you know knockoff films where they were low-key yeah unofficial totally sequels yeah there's tons of unofficial italian sequels to the omen yeah and the exorcist and the yeah. evil dead movies that have nothing to do with any of those i didn't know about any of this until we started this podcast but like aaron taking me through this journey especially when we started hitting giallo finally because like in the u.s it's like a knockoff movie and they just they used to send it straight to blockbuster or now straight to tv instead of lord of the rings it was kings of the ring and <laughs> things like that and they yeah, were just yeah. like these knockoff movies whereas a Italians are like, no, 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 demons, one and two, yeah, you made that, now we're gonna do our thing, completely rip them off, oh, this is demons four, by the yeah. way, I love the fucking <laughs> the guts of yeah. just, yeah, to yeah. like rip something off and then claim it's a sequel to another franchise, yeah. <laughs> like that's fantastic the ip laws are just completely fucking different so they can just be like oh yeah no this is texas chainsaw 5 and it has nothing to do with anything right so is there like an italian star wars that like completely ignores the prequels right i don't know about italian star wars unless you technically count star crash but there is definitely turkish star oh yeah there is turkish star wars (laughs) but yeah anyway so this actor also has a weird jump forward in time where it's like oh 
oh, we know this guy from these exploitation movies. Put him in these modern movies just kind of as like a wink-wink, nudge-nudge to people that know. So he's also in, again, we're talking about Giovanni Lombardo Radici from Ferox. He is also in Gangs of New York. Yes. He is the, like crazy priest at the beginning of the omen remake the burned priest actually yeah yeah, he's the burned priest that they go to later at the end of the day like he's one of those guys that everybody kind of knew from these notorious movies he's been in a shit ton of these things from a crossover standpoint so something something i noticed too if we're comparing and contrasting holocaust and ferox Holocaust, at least for the cast list and everything, it's just straight up. Whereas with Ferox, each cast member also had their English dub because I felt like some parts of Holocaust were dubbed over. But I again, I haven't watched Ferox. Is it noticeable in Ferox? Let's back up there as well, too. So there's two things happening there. They are both very practical movie making kinds of things. So firstly, a lot of these fucking movies were specifically made with worldwide marketing in mind right they were not necessarily made like oh this is an italian movie for italy like this was made to go out to the entire world so a lot of times they will hire actors kind of from all over the place specifically to secure financing then that goes to this day too where like oh you want to get a grant from ireland from a production studio there or just from the national fund to make your movie cool even spaghetti westerns did that shit sure but in order to do that you then have to hire a certain number of irish crew and irish actors right so it's kind of the same thing here where in order to secure funding from italian entities they had to have a certain amount of italian crew and italian cast members but then they also had to have a certain amount of american actors to get financing from america and so it was also one of those things too where in general they wanted to just shoot in English for most of these, which is then a lot of Italian actors speaking English, but then obviously to hide the accents, they then dub them. The other thing, and I think we talked about this a little bit when we first started doing Giallo stuff, historically in Italy, they just didn't fucking film with sync sound. That was just not a thing. Back in the <laughs> wow. day, Chinachita, which was the fucking movie studio in Italy, because it was all like state funded. God, state funding, what a foreign concept, huh? To America, <laughs> yeah, yes, I know. But that's, that's like that's literally joke, how the yeah. entire rest of the world functions as far as film is concerned. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how like even Canada has state funded films. Yeah. So with Italy, they're shooting at Chinachita Studios in the middle of downtown Rome. And so there's constantly fucking cars and noise and city stuff whizzing around. So they can't film with sync sound because the mics are going to be picking up all the other fucking noise that's just around that you can't hide because you're in the middle of downtown Rome. And think about if you're in the middle of the fucking Amazon, all the <laughs> shit you're going to pick up too. Yeah. Uh-huh, right? Yeah, so that, that makes more sense. Yeah, so just from the beginning, fundamentally, Italians just 
did not shoot with sync sound, which is why pretty much every Italian movie that you watch... Even into the 80s, huh? Everything yeah. is dubbed. Yeah. Even now, quite often, you'll still have movies like wow. that. They just do not shoot with sync sound, and everything is dubbed. Even movies that were like Italian movies that were still in Italian, they just <laughs> dubbed everything afterward and ADR'd everything afterward just because they didn't shoot with sync sound. So everything was done after the fact. So even once that technology got better and they weren't fucking filming in downtown Rome like if they were filming on location they still just didn't shoot that way it just wasn't culturally how they did things right so then it made it really easy to then go in and just get voice actors to then dub all of these people for whatever language you want to throw it out yeah. in okay. and that was just kind of how Italian movies look and feel in general so people yeah. just got used to it there's a practical reason why that is yeah yeah gotcha. you, you can definitely tell there's like an overdub in the American American scenes, but it's much more recognizable in the jungle scenes. Yeah, yeah. because they're they're speaking Italian. In Holocaust, I, I, it was more like that in the jungle scenes. Yeah. So kind of go back, shift back to like talking about like the themes and common things you see in this this genre. And part of the what makes these transgressive, besides like the extreme violence, sexual and otherwise, and animal cruelty and all that, again is the use of indigenous tribe people. Andrew, something I wanted to ask you. It's kind of like the last main thing I wanted to uh, ask you personally. With Ferox and Holocaust, them using actual tribes, is that a common thing in the genre? Like, even up to like Eli Roth's Green Inferno, like, have they been using indigenous tribes as like kind of cast, quote unquote, for these movies? If that's the case, how do they get them to cooperate with something like this? And like, what do they do? And like, how do they get them to go along with being dressed to be like human eating cannibals? Like, you know, I'm not sure about Ferox or uh, Holocaust. I mean, I know that they did use indigenous people for that but I'm, I'm much more familiar with the story for Eli Roth's Green Inferno oh do tell do tell he went out there on location and found a indigenous tribe there and he showed them Cannibal Holocaust he he played it for yeah. them he like brought a projector <laughs> out and showed them Cannibal Holocaust is like hey listen I want you guys to do this for me and they were super into it, apparently. They loved it. They loved the idea of it. They thought it was awesome. You know what would have been fucked up if they thought that it was a comedy movie uh, yeah, right? <laughs> for them? <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Famously, in making The Green Inferno, he aired a copy of Cannibal Holocaust, and they were super on board. That's amazing. Yeah, I imagine yeah. it was something similar for um, the OGs. But yeah, yeah. Eli Roth showed them the movie, and they were like, oh, this is cool as shit. You know? And they were like, we want to be a part of this. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure he helped them out, you know, with yeah. whatever. I'm not sure what you give those types of people, but, you know, food or clothing or, or what. But like exchange of goods. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Goods. I mean, I'm sure it was better than some beads or some shit like we did over here in America for, for land. Yeah, right. So there's a couple of things there, too. This is not a new phenomenon by any means, right? Since the fucking beginning of film, tribes and groups of more primitive indigenous people have been used for filming since always. Like, that literally goes back to King Kong. Yeah. Where I think the line gets iffy is what does their depiction look like ultimately? Does that match reality or not? I guess as far as are are we exploiting this group? 
I think there is a legitimate argument to be made that we are, but in the same way that we exploit any indigenous group for anything. Yeah, well, in these movies especially, in Holocaust specifically, I think there's a couple things to think about, which is, does the depiction of the group match the reality of who they actually are? Because in all these cases, these were not actual tribes people. Not of these tribes, not dressed the way they are, not living the way they are. That is all like made up stuff, right? But I thought in Holocaust, they name drop a real life tribe or two real life Correct. tribes, right? But those are not the people from that tribe. Oh, okay. At yeah, all. Yeah. Those tribes are both tribes from Brazil. They shot this movie in Colombia. Okay. And the two tribes that are in Brazil are nothing like the tribes that are shown in the movie. And the people that are playing these characters, they did not live out in the middle of the wilderness. They literally lived around this actual modern town, and they were just farmers and people like that. These were not actual tribes that they just found in the jungle and said, hey, let's put you in a movie. You know, so it's that whole, like, we're essentially taking all these people and dressing them up as these fake savages to film them as such, right? And that's fundamentally exploitative, yeah. right? There's also the idea of, okay, well, how are they treated? At least in the case of Holocaust, they weren't treated very well. Docker. They were abused pretty heavily, and then none of them were compensated. That's the other part of it. None of them were compensated. It was just like, know oh, that this movie, all right, bye. That sucks, <laughs> that, yeah. That makes sense, though. I think those three things are generally where the whole, is this group of people being exploited kind of comes into play. Yeah, that's all much more like shake your ground to stand on. Yeah, and you know, I think both of these movies are trying to show this specificity through the manipulations of this media group and the journalists in holocaust and then again these journalist activists and treasure seekers in ferox yeah. right well like andrew said with ferox they're holding a mirror up to themselves then at that point yeah because they're right? doing the exact same thing they're critiquing on we're looking at how these people are being incited and much of what's shown in the movie is being caused by these outsiders right but the movie is then kind of also turning right around and depicting the local as absolute savages and pushing yeah. them to perform these humiliating and dangerous acts for the camera like the tribes people in holocaust all being shoved into this one hut as it's lit on fire light on fire yeah. Yep. And they're all running around screaming. That's fundamentally not safe. And yeah. we are putting these real life people through this. And again, nobody's compensated for any of that, right? And that's where a little bit of the reality bleeds into the fiction. Because like in, yes. during that scene, they do that. And then they all gather the entire tribe on the ocean as the two filmmakers are having sex on the burned remains. Even though it's all being like filmed and like, oh, this is within the realm of the story. Just looking at the people who are just sitting on the shore who have just been taken terrorized by the characters in the film they look legitimately upset like this fucking sucks it's also fucked that they're filming a sex scene simulated or not yeah and there's literally 30 fucking children sitting there watching as well yeah that's also questionable yeah you know if diodato's aim was to comment on western exploitation of primitive cultures through sensational shock media again could have done all that without 
hypocritically committing the same exact yeah, sins, it's right? It's really <laughs> ironic how they all do that. They yeah. all exploit these people in the process of being like, isn't it bad how we exploit these people? Yeah. yeah. Now, on the more interesting side of this, I watched a brand new documentary that just came out on the making of Hannibal Holocaust. Not on the making of Hannibal Holocaust. I take it back. Hannibal Holocaust, not Hannibal Hannibal Holocaust. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was just like... Uh, Keep it in. Keep it in. Don't cut it. Yeah, it's late here. Sorry. I just watched a interesting, weird documentary on Cannibal Holocaust called Searching for Cannibal Holocaust, where this guy goes down to Letitia Columba. He goes down to Letitia Columba. Jesus Christ, I'm having a John Travolta (laughs) moment. He goes down to Letitia. Trying to say Letitia Columbia is kind of hard. He goes down to Letitia, Columbia to basically just find the locations of where they filmed Cannibal Holocaust and to see if he can find anybody that was in the movie. And sure enough, he goes down there. He immediately finds most of the locations. They're all kind of around the same area of the city called Letitia. And he finds the guy who plays the young tribesmen that they capture at the beginning of the movie when the anthropologist is going. And they kind of have him with them. Oh, you mean the one that they forced to take cocaine at one point off a knife? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and like eat fucking muskrat brains. Yes. They find that guy, and he's living with his mom, and he's just a little farmer guy, and his mom was also in the movie. His mom was one of the women mixing up the, like, white goop that they drink. It was interesting with these guys making this documentary, talking to them about, what was your experience like? Do you feel like you were exploited? Do you feel like you were taken advantage of? You know, and they both kind of say generally, like, no, our experience was not the worst. You know, were we competent? Nah, but we don't feel like we were being unfairly depicted. You know, they even ask them like, you know, is there a history of cannibalism with these tribes? And they were like, eh, psh, nah, like that's all bullshit. We knew it was bullshit. Not a big deal. Do we actually eat spider monkeys? Yes, we eat spider monkeys. Do we eat spider monkey brains? Uh-huh. That's a delicacy. Yeah, it's like totally good shit. We eat that. So it was interesting to find this kind of half and half of generally speaking, they didn't really have a problem with how they were depicted in this movie. You know, the guy was totally cool about like, yeah, I'll bring you and show you all the fucking locations where we filmed this thing it's well known around this town everybody here kind of holds it up as this weird tourist thing and like yeah we made a movie here years ago wasn't that neat is it a movie that we're proud of yeah but like no at the same time right like it's this weird (laughs) interesting kind of mix but the other thing i think was really interesting was the more that they dig in and it's wild because they're talking about all this on this documentary that just came out last year and i didn't find any of this information in any of the research I did. And it makes me wonder, too, because there's no way that all the other movies, again, like Ferox and Eaten Alive and everything else, didn't have some of these same things going on. All of these movies, rampant drug use. Everybody's doing cocaine. It's the fucking late 70s, early 80s. Everybody is high out of their fucking minds in the jungle. So it makes sense that there is some weird hookup and connection going on all these places. Again, this is Colombia, Venezuela, Honduras that all these movies are being filmed in. The Philippines as well. A lot of these 
these movies are shot in the Philippines. So all of these locations, you know, in Colombia where they shot Holocaust at least, there was a massive civil war going on at the time. And lots of people in the cities were fleeing to the jungles. In the middle of them filming? Yes. Wow. Yes. So people were fleeing the city and going to the jungle and they were being guided out there by, you know, in air quotes, guides, right? A lot of them were involved with the drug trade. The filmmaker of this documentary kind of puts the math together and kind of concludes that there's no fucking way that they filmed this movie at this time and at this location without paying protection money to someone at some point in time because that's like literally how everything fucking worked at that drug cartels yeah well government cartels to whoever right yeah the other crazy thing is the town of letitia where they shot most of the movie and a lot of ferox these were all kind of made in the same area like they in in this documentary they literally like oh here's the entire like front facade of this building that's at the beginning of cannibal ferox this town was founded by an animal trafficker from Florida named Mike Salikis. He was this Greek-American guy. Well, that's another thing I need to fucking Google now. Yeah, so the plane from Animal Holocaust, or (laughs) Animal Holocaust, it is an Animal Holocaust. The plane from Cannibal Holocaust, the pilot is his brother. The animals that they killed were all provided by this guy. The locations were all set up by him. He is tied to basically everything in the background of the production. You do not ever see his name in the credits for anything and so it becomes this weird like wait so how is this guy so deeply involved with this production and ferox and several of these other movies but we like never fucking hear about him yeah well it's because he's deeply tied in with the fucking drug trade Uh. apparently and animal trafficking all of shooting these movies was a weird front for this guy real nightmare shit happening exactly Because there's a scene in Cannibal Ferox where an anaconda eats a muskrat. I'm like, where the fuck did they get an anaconda? They didn't just tie this muskrat out and wait for an anaconda to show up, you know? Yeah, the anaconda and the the caiman that are in Holocaust as well were provided by him. The, like, jaguar that you see in that movie that they kind of shoot away and, like, scare off is also there. Like, the monkeys, everything was provided by him. Matter of fact, he opened this fucking island animal sanctuary that is called Monkey Island that is now... Now, like thousands of spider monkeys live there and they weren't necessarily indigenous to that area he brought them there and now they are part of the fabric of that entire area and it's like a huge tourist attraction thing that's funny yeah there's a huge poster in the beginning of cannibal ferox when they're trying to secure the boat there's a huge billboard for yes monkey island they show that yes that is in this documentary and they literally find that location they find the facade where that was and this guy Salicus lived at the top of the building. And so they kind of discover that this guy, again, who was an animal trafficker, who was maybe dot 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 tied in with some level of drug trafficking and cartel ship because his brother was involved with the drug side of it. They were 
putting cocaine bags down fish that they caught. They would, like, catch a bunch of fish, pack them full of fucking cocaine, and then fly them to different parts <laughs> of South America. Jesus Christ, And yeah. this guy was eventually arrested and jailed for, like, 20 years. And he just died three or four years ago. But ultimately, what they kind of conclude, finally talking to all these people down there, and everybody knows this guy. Everybody fucking knows Mike Salikas. He was like the unofficial mayor of this town. And so all of these productions seem to, weirdly enough, be fronts for all of his fucking operations. It's like a weird money laundering kind of thing. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, I'll put up money to have this movie come and shoot. Yeah, I'll be an <laughs> investor in this movie. Just keep my name completely off everything. So that was like a wild whole extra layer to this bullshit that I had yeah. no idea about. But most of these movies that shot down there were all kind of set up Fronts. by this guy. Yeah. yeah. Alright, well, I think we have talked to death everything. Andrew, what one last thing, because you are a fan of the genre. We mentioned Ferox and Holocaust. You've mentioned you like Ferox more. If you had to pick five movies, your top five from this genre for our listeners who may want to actually check out more in the subgenre, what five would you recommend? Well, I mean, obviously, Cannibal Ferox, Cannibal Holocaust, Mountain of the Cannibal God is really great. Yeah. Man from Deep River. I would say Eaten Alive and Green Inferno. I mean, Green Inferno is like the culmination of all of them, where uh, I think Cannibal Ferox was one of the last Italian cannibal horror movies, and that's why I think it's probably one of the best, is because they tried the formula out over and over and over, and I feel like Cannibal Ferox is kind of it boiled down. And then, of course, Green Inferno, it is the Hollywood love letter to the entire genre. Yeah. It's all the best elements put together. So, yeah, like that would be my top five. Probably uh, Man from Deep River, Eaten Alive, Mountain of the Cannibal God, Cannibal Ferox, Cannibal Holocaust, and... Green Inferno. Nice. There's another Diodato movie that's actually pretty fucking dope called Cut and Run. And it's a lot of the same stuff. It's got Michael Berryman in it. It's kind of like this whole other weird action movie kind of thing. That one is pretty fucking dope. The other one that I like as well, it's an Antonio Margaretti movie. I have seen it as cannibal apocalypse but it's also called invasion of the flesh hunters and cannibals in the street so if you're going to look for it it's got a couple different titles but this one stars john saxon and then it also has giovanni labardo radici in it that we were talking about from ferox but this one starts in the jungle so it's kind of the opposite where instead of starting in the big city and going to the jungle it starts in the jungle in vietnam vets that were pow's get brought back to new york and then they like go full zombie and they're like zombie cannibals why not (laughs) so yeah that one's actually pretty fucking fun as well nice all right well i think that'll wrap it up we knew this was gonna be a long one especially after uh my fuck up we wind up talking about two movies for one or an entire genre actually this works perfect honestly yeah entire genre yeah worked i I mean i kind of like that yeah i i really kind of like that yeah it worked really well i feel like you can't really talk about any one of these movies without talking about all of them 
Yeah. So, you know, I feel like this was actually like perfect. Yeah, I think the next one I'm going to check out is Ferox after talking to you guys about it. But uh, yeah, no, thank you once again so much to Andrew Parker for coming on and suggesting Absolutely. we do these movies. And again, real quick, what are some things you'd like people to check out and what are some socials you want to hit? Yeah, you can find Crypta. Just search Crypta in your podcast stuff, C-R-Y-P-T-A, and Ghosters, anywhere you find podcasts. And my Instagram is where I put some of the more loose fitting stuff like what dreams may come to electric boogaloo <laughs> is is on my instagram currently some of the more one-off stuff i do is on there and my instagram is ac parker 320 hell yeah we are watch of dare a horror movie podcast hosted by me the coward and aaron the movie monster boy you can find us at watch if you dare for twitter and facebook follow us along on for socials please check us out on pretty much all the major podcast platforms we're on apple stitcher google etc etc please continue to rate and review us especially on apple and pod chaser uh that's where we've actually gotten a lot of reviews and we've charted a little bit which is amazing thank you guys for all the support shout outs to your little brother jesse mansfield for the bumps at the beginning end of each episode you can find all his music on Bandcamp at uh opossums big clown party gator all the millions of others things he's doing yep if you happen to live around the memphis area definitely keep your ears open around the time that this episode drops they'll be playing a few different shows so definitely go check out his groups if you are in the area speaking of music check out our spotify music playlist it's tagged at the top of our twitter as well as on our facebook and as well on our podbean website um, which also links out to all of our shit and actually if you want to at least with crypta for andrew i saw that y'all are on twitter as well as at crypto series yes so please again go check out andrew and all his work crypto is fucking hilarious i can't wait to listen through ghosters now as well as everything else you do excellent thanks guys and yeah i think that's it i don't have a any clever outro i don't know if you do aaron maybe we were the sallies all along (laughs) if only we could get out of this holocaust this cannibal holocaust too bad this inferno's so hot this green inferno (laughs) here we are at the edge of the world of human history things like this happen all the time in the jungle it's survival of the fittest in the jungle it's the daily violence of the strong overcoming the weak sally